Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey, happy Monday, guys. Hope you guys are well. This is a podcast with a with a guy, a gentleman named Bob Owens. Bob owns Lone Duck Outfitters. Uh, Bob's been working waterfowl and gun dogs now for a long time, and it's just good to sit down for me and talk to somebody that does training completely different but with dogs. So, uh, you know, they're still we're still working with dogs, but we, we are doing – we're getting the a different goal each time we're training differently. And so I just love sitting down and learning more about how other people train with dogs and the things that they do to be successful in their world. So there's a sit down between Bob Owens and I from Lone Duck. I hope you guys enjoy it and we'll talk to you guys Wednesday. All right, Bob, thanks for coming. Dude, I'm glad to be here. I'm excited. So the reason why I had you on, like I was telling you before is I want to learn as much as I can about dogs. I want to learn the different avenues Mm -hmm. and the different things that dogs can do because, you know, my content and my audience and the things that I do are very niche to a sense of educational based information for people who have typically behavioral issues. Not only that, but typically that's like what I do. Hey, if your dog is wanting to bite somebody or whatever. Um, But I remember... There's a conversation you and I had, which I'll go over in a minute, which was funnier than hell to me. Um, But I I really want to talk to you about the things that you do and how you do them because I just want to learn more about dogs. So why don't you just go over to Kyle and I and the audience, like what what it is you do and you don't have to give your whole story right now, but just introduce yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thanks for having me. My name's Bob Owens. Um, I'm a professional retriever trainer. I compete across the country in hunt tests and field trials. Majority of the dogs that I work with are Labrador Retrievers. Um, We've got Chesapeake's, Golden Retrievers. I have my own little English setter that I grouse and woodcock hunt with. Um, But she's just like a fun dog. She doesn't have to perform, if you will. Um, We train dogs for other people. And so they send their dog to us for four months at a minimum up to a long time. You know, I've got four-year-old dogs that I bred and raised and these people send them to me from January, February till next duck season and we compete at a high level with them and it's super fun man it's it's a different world it's something that I didn't grow up doing but I always loved it I've always loved seeing a dog work right so whether it's a sheep dog a protection dog a beagle chasing rabbits and then these Labradors and going out in the icy water and and bringing back our birds. And then I dove into that hunt task career, right? Where you're getting accolades and you're proofing against judges and a standard that all the hard work that me and that dog did over a long period of time meant something and they, they succeed and you can see it and you get rewarded with a ribbon and a title and you're like, dang man, we did it. You know, we Mm -hmm. put the time in. So that's my forte. Um, Early in my career, I did, I did behavioral stuff. I would go to people's homes and help them with, you know, wouldn't get off the couch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll never forget the 
not the last dog that bit me, but, you know, Rhodesian Ridgeback that's like, you know, he's nine years old and has problems with people leaving the house. I'm like, well, I kind of need the money. I guess I'm going and doing this. And he was great. It was like session one, freaking sweet. Session two, sweet. Third session, whammy, nailed me. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of, that's not my forte anymore. I, I learned a ton from Caesar Milan and his books and show. And so psychology behind the dog helps me become a better retriever trainer mm. versus just A plus B equals C gets us to mm-hmm. the end goal of what we want them to do as a duck dog. Um, so I, I, I do have a little bit of a background that's more diverse, I think, than some other guys and gals in my industry but overall man i just i love duck hunting and it turned into loving watching a dog do it and then now i get to do it for other people Mm -hmm. and they get to go hunt with their dog and the memories they make with them is just it's awesome did you grow up hunting i mean how did you how did you pick like i know you said you started with behavioral cases and things like that did you grow up hunting as a kid yeah so good question um so my dad was a police officer um, in central New York, and he grew up trapping, hunting. He went out and went to college in Wyoming and hunting uh, out there, and, and he had this picture book, right? We don't even have them anymore, but like a photo album. Like a, to learn about training or? No, just he, he never, he had dogs um, growing up, but, but he had this book at you know seven years old. I'm sitting in bed looking at my dad's old pictures like, man, I want to be like him someday, and I want to hunt. And when he became a cop, he saw a lot of bad things and didn't want to hurt anything anymore. So we grew up shooting and being comfortable and responsible with firearms, but he didn't want to go and, and hunt anymore. So I had this thing in my back of my head as like a little kid that I want to be like my dad, I want to be a hunter, and I love dogs. And then... As I got into college, I started hunting more, got in with friends that took me and taught me, and, and it blossomed. Um, there was a prominent TV show on the Sportsman's Channel called uh, Ducks Unlimited's Water Dog TV. I think I was probably like 16 to 22 when that TV show was on, and it was not like any other hunting show. A lot of hunting shows, it's uh, ducks in the sky, guns going off, ducks fall, guys high five end of show Mm -hmm. this was about the relationship between that guy and his dog Mm. and so was there duck hunting yes but there was a each episode had a a dog training or like a retriever training tip but it was about him and his dog and i never forgot it and i wanted to be him i wanted to go and train dogs i got my first dog was a yellow lab because his dog was a yellow lab right I bought dog for e-collar for the first collar because they sponsored the show and he used dog tra. Cool. You know what I'm saying? So it's like ingrained in me from 17 that this is cool. Now fast forward, I go to college, you know, still love dogs. I, th- I thought I wanted um, a dog de Bordeaux, the French Mastiff. Yeah. So that was like Turner and Hooch. I'm like, man, that's going to be my first dog. I, yeah. I want one. And then I'm thinking, why would I get a dog if I want to be a duck hunter and have a duck dog? Why would I get that first? So boom, get out of college, first paycheck, I bought a Labrador. And he's 13 now. He's actually, he's hurting a little bit. So it's been emotional lately watching him decline. Yeah, it is. Dude, it's the worst. It's It's the worst. So uh, he and I set out on this adventure. I uh, I sold business insurance at the time and... 
I'm meeting when all you were in college. You, uh, so or this is this after this college? Is, this is after college. I think I was 24, 24, 25. I get this dog and I, I fall in love, right? Like I want the dog that can do it all. Not necessarily, I don't want to say this wrongly, but I, I thought I could have a remote control, right? You know, tweet, cast, get into the water, do all these crazy wild things. And how far can I take him? How good can I get at this? And Buck taught me a lot. I was a lot less patient back then. I expected perfection. Yeah. Because I thought that's what, you know, you read the books, you watch the DVDs. These guys had dogs doing amazing things. And when he would have a bad day, man, I was like, this dog sucks. Then the next day he was awesome. And it's like, this dog's awesome. And I had this roller coaster of emotions. And I've learned in time that you trust the process of, of the training and the dog will come. Bad days happen. You know, doesn't, it's like sports, right? Like, mm -hmm. They can't be a game every game um he taught me a lot and during business insurance sales i'd meet all these business owners and i always had this idea of like if you owned a business you were wicked smart <laughs> you just juggled like you just think like if you own a business you are a genius and you got your shit together and so i thought i don't have my shit together and i'm you know average intelligence so i could never do it well that's I'd, what you thought that's right? what i thought right yeah, so yeah. i start going and meeting these owners and selling them insurance and they're just like me they're knuckleheads they're going to golf and drink beer with their buddies and yet they're super successful and i had a few that really kind of mentored me into what do you like these well, business owners mm -hmm. yeah so we'd be talking about insurance and they're like what are you what are you doing dude mm -hmm. what do you want that's cool yeah that's huge i'll never forget them man they were they were just normal guys and so I started Lone Duck Outfitters. It was a t-shirt and hat company. I was going to be the next Cabela's, man. I was ready. Hell yeah. Yeah. And uh, I would travel. I would take vacation time from work, and I would load a whole trailer full of swag and e-collars and, like, Pete Fisher from Dogtra. I remember the phone call I called him. I'm in my car on a sales call. Call up Pete. Can I start selling Dogtra e-collars? He's like, hell yeah, man. Go for it. It was, like, 12, 13 years ago. And... uh it just was a, a wild ride. So I would take take a week vacation. I would drive out on Friday, sell my gear at these hunt tests, make a thousand bucks, and I thought I was rich. And uh, tr I would sleep on a couch of a professional retriever trainer, and they would let me train with them and buck. And I learned a ton. I'd yeah. learned things that I liked. I learned things that I didn't like. You know, and I would take the things that I didn't like, and I would say, I understand the value of what I just saw but I think I can do it a little bit differently. Again, Caesar Milan, a little psychology behind it. Ah, man, I did that for years. And every vacation I would go and sell gear and I, I would go from New York to Georgia to Alabama to where, I mean, all over just selling gear. So you were, so after you uh, did college mm -hmm. and did all that, you got out of college, you got your dog Buck mm -hmm. and you were like, so, this, this so that. it sparked something. Do you feel like you're, the hunter came before the dog. It did. Yep. Did the did the hunter come before uh, duck training? Like, were you into like deer hunting and other types of hunting, and then or just? It was strictly for me at that time. It was strictly duck hunting, waterfowl hunting, um, and pheasant hunting. And I didn't have any friends that had dogs. I didn't know. I didn't have any of it. Right. Like I just from the time I was a little kid. I think we talked about this on my podcast when you jumped on. Like. I had an encyclopedia of the dog breeds 
from the 1950s. It was a gift. And I'm, I'm looking behind at your English pointer, and the guy who gave it to me ran English pointers and trials on horseback, and he gave me this book. And I bet you it's the only book I've read where I actually gave a crap. <laughs> and I could, I could tell you where English pointers came from, what their original purpose, the St. Bernard, the Newfoundland, the Malinois, the Dutch Shepherd. I knew them all. I could go from A to Z, and I could name every dog in that book and where they were from and what their jobs were. And so, you know, at 16, when that show came out, I'm like, I think this is something I want to do. When I get my own dog, I'm going to make that dog happen. I'm going to have that relationship with that dog. So it started, I read every dog training book for retriever training, um, buy the DVDs. I didn't even have a dog. And I think everyone who's listening that wants to get into dog training, you don't even need a dog. Don't get the dog and then try and figure it out. Be a sponge for all those, that time before you end up getting the dog and, and you'll be way better off, right? You're listening to this podcast because you want to be better with your dog. You know, if you're, don't have a dog yet, keep listening to the podcasts. Yeah. Build, build yourself some knowledge. So when I got Buck, it's not like I'm, oh, shoot, you know, let me start reading. I had a really good understanding of the process. And over time, meeting those other guys, training, Caesar Milan, all the stuff, it's like I could side hustle this. So I'd go to work all day, go home, and I'd have like three appointments at people's homes from 5 o'clock till 9 o'clock at night. And I would teach them how to walk the dog on a leash and not jump, you know, on guests when they come in the door and stop counter surfing and, you know, make like, 25 bucks an hour mm-hmm. i'm like man i'm freaking rich again mm-hmm. so uh that's kind of how i got started and then an opportunity came via you know selling gear and sleeping on couches to go and quit my sales job and become a retriever trainer and so that was i think eight years ago give or take and it was the best man i trained so many dogs so many different personalities from six months old till you know, I don't know, we would get like a three or five year old, like people we needed training and it had so many bad habits. And just, I learned by doing and honing that craft down there. And I came home to central New York and hung my shingle and I'll never forget it. Some of your story really resonated with me and I'm sure your listeners, like we don't probably have to hash it out, but your story resonated with me because at 30 years old, I was sleeping in a warehouse on a recliner with about four dogs and four dogs was not paying my bills. So at 30 years old, my birthday night, I'm sleeping by myself in a warehouse with four dogs and I can't pay my bills. And I'm like, this is not good, man. Like I'm not selling enough t-shirts for this. I'm not training enough dogs for this. I I'm in the, the red on my bills. I don't know what next month's going to be. And March I had six, April I had eight. And all of a sudden I never looked back, man. And so the dogs, the dogs that you had, you're talking about your, those are clients. Yep. Yep. Those okay. are client dogs and old buck. Cool. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I want to go back a little bit on yeah. your story and how you, I'm interested in your t-shirt stuff. Cause that's, that's interesting to me. Yeah. So you, you were go. what, what were you doing with this wag? You were going to different events and yeah. shot shows and things like that. Well, shot show, no, but I was going to these hunt tests. So on a, on a, any given weekend in this country, you can go to a hunt test or a field, field trial for, for our dogs. Right. Or if you wanted a beagle, like there's, there's an event every weekend. And so all summer long, Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings, I was going to Buffalo, Syracuse, Vermont, you know, and hitting these tests up and selling my gear. And, and basically 
my company's slogan is the unspoken bond, sharing your passion for the unspoken bond. And so I was talking to these people and saying, man, you know, the relationship you've built with your dog, the, all the time and effort that you've done. And then that first duck hunt, you take that dog on all that work you did. That first duck goes down. It's the culmination of all that. I just got chills. All that effort that you put into that dog and the relationship you've built and the memories you've built training. Now you're doing the real thing. And to see that dog do its job and, and, yeah. and succeed. And you're like, it happened. And so that unspoken bond between our dogs is, is what the company was founded on. So our t-shirts were kind of doing pretty well, the unspoken bond. Everyone was buying into it because of the feeling that we all know, right? So it's... It, How were you selling them? Were you, just, were you just walking around these trials and saying like, hey, my name's Bob. I got some cool shirts. <laughs> yeah, dude. Uh, I, I did that. I, had a, uh, I would set up like a folding table and I'd put a tent over it and hang a... Uh, sign and i'm a pretty outgoing guy so yeah i would when no one would come up and talk to me i'd go and grab them and hi how are you like well what dog did you bring today what do you what test are you running oh this and that and they're like what are you doing here i'm like well i'm selling gear over here come look oh we've got dog tree collars yours is broken come over here i've got bark collars i've got the you know and i would do okay and then the name and that's when social media was like remember back in the day facebook was just for college kids yeah yeah the glory days yeah. Um, when your parents weren't on there. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't go through my college pictures, please. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they're deleted. Um, but that time frame is when Facebook switched to being businesses. And I did a gun dog of the month contest. And so everyone would send pictures in. I would post every single picture and the most likes one gun dog of the month. They get a free t-shirt sent to them. And this thing went from you know, 10 pictures to 500 pictures. And I'm like, holy smokes. And t-shirts started f flying off the shelves on the website. And that's cool. Yeah, dude, it was really cool. And I built this little brand, but it was not sustainable at the time to scale. I, I mean, like I told you, dude, I was making 30 grand a year as a salesman. Like you, I couldn't figure out how to put more money into advertising and figuring it out. So that's when dog training came in and like making that side hustle like every dollar i could make went back into buying more inventory and trying a new design and and i mean we still do it like you can still get loan duck gear and sell stuff and mm -hmm. but it's not the main source of income yeah i'm sure the um the salesman in you was helpful when you were going to those trials oh yeah you walk into an office and tell them you're the business insurance guy and like <laughs> sweet old ladies, like your grandma going, get out of here. Like, oh, cold calling sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I got built up a, a thick skin of, of walking up to people and shaking hands and making conversation. Yeah, that's cool. So you, so you, um, at the time when you started getting into, when you were living in the couches, right? So mm -hmm. you started to kind of cut your teeth on, on retrieval training. Mm -hmm. by sleeping on these couches yeah. of these other guys that were doing it. Yeah. And you were learning the ins and the outs. That's right. And then you combined some of the behavioral stuff that you may have learned from Caesar and other, well, yeah. probably just Caesar yeah. at the time. The monks of Nooski, right. like all those different ideas, I was able to look, listen, watch them train 30 dogs in a day. And I get to jump in and they're giving, you know, standing back here, giving me tips while I'm running my dog 
and it it blossomed and it, it really I'm no joke sparked like this is what I'm supposed to do. Yep. You um, had that aha moment. Yep, and I've got to just figure out how to make a living at it. That aha moment, Kyle, I'd be interested to hear your aha moment because I don't really know if you had one, but that aha moment, I think a lot of people in the dog industry in specific because it's such a passion project. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, when I was growing up and we're around this, how old are you? Third, I'll be 36 yeah. in February. So we're around the same age. We're a couple years apart. So when we were growing up, dog training was a hobby that yeah. a lot of middle-aged women did at the fairgrounds. Yeah. And at the VFW. And my that, that was my experience with it anyway. Um, it wasn't like a... I didn't know it was a career. It's, yeah. And I don't think it... I really don't think it was, you know, until now it's because... You know, social media helps. It's good and bad. Yeah. Um, but I think understanding that... Anyway, so the aha moment that you had. Mm-hmm. Was there a particular dog or a particular situation that you were in where... Because I remember there were a couple aha moments that I had in particular, if I really think about, like, I'm like, I had these goosebumps where I was like, I just changed this lady's life forever. Yeah. I'm like, that feels, that feels really good. Yep. And then it's like, how do I, I was like that, you know, in my story, I was like, man, I can't charge $20 for a training session. Right. That's crazy. Nobody's going to pay that. (laughs) And I'm not a trainer. Like I don't, you know, but I'm like, but I just helped her. Okay, fine, I'll, you know, and that's, so was there any moment that you can remember that clicked where you were like, damn, that was cool? I would say the click really was with Buck and how it made me feel watching him progress from a baby puppy swimming for the first time to that first duck that we got that is the story of Lone Duck. We shot one duck and he did the job ah, and it's cool. like- this is this this is what I'm I'm here for. Um, but then once I started helping people, to your point, that feeling inside of they were gonna give the dog to a shelter, it bit their kid. Uh, which maybe we dive into that, but I don't know. I've changed my opinion on it a little bit now. Sure. Um, you know, no bad dogs. I hear you. <laughs> if, if I got a one year old and it got bit, <laughs> we're gonna have a discussion. So. Um, you know, I think being able to take those dogs that people thought they were going to have to get rid of, or it yanks an old lady down the road and she's all, you know, scratched up and I'm the guy that comes in and teaches her how to handle it. Mm-hmm. it it's still a feeling that I get when I, I see clients go hunting with their dog for the first time, or they run the dog in the hunt test and they get the ribbon. And they're like, I never could have done this without you. That's a feeling that... um Whatever you do in life, that's the feeling you should have when you go to work every day. Mm-hmm. Like, this makes me feel fulfilled. Do you, do you have, like, an aha moment before you started working with us? Or Yeah, I mean, I think it was a, a combination of things. I think Tuco really, my, my personal dog, he really pushed me to want to learn more, to give him, like, the best life he could have. And I, I had a lot of goals with him as far as like off leash. It was basic stuff at first. Like I didn't start teaching him fancy obedience until he was like a year and a half. Sure, he's, yeah. He's flashy at this point, especially for a shelter dog. I mean, he's a Malinois Staffy mix. But like at first, I just wanted to go hiking with him and be off leash and go to the beach with him and just have a good life. And then people saw what I was doing with him and were asking me 
to help. And at yeah. first I was like, classic. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I just, I just trained my dog. I was like, it's not that big of a deal. I was, I was in a daycare boarding facility at the time doing like photography and videography on the side and stuff. But when people started asking me, I started helping and I definitely bit off more than I could chew at first. As far as like my second dog I worked with, it was a family friend. It was a reactive dog. Oh, nice. Um, and after like three sessions, two sessions, I think we got him walking right next to Tuco, like side by side, not losing it. And I was like, they started crying and I was like, holy shit. I, I was like, bingo. I was like, yeah, I was like, it, it was, I don't know. It's like, it gets worked up talking about it. Cause it was like, it was probably four years ago at this point, mm-hmm. but it was just like seeing how much I changed their lives. Like their dog was going after their little dog and they thought they were gonna have to get rid of it. Oh yeah. Couldn't walk down the street without setting off hundred yards from another dog and like we got that dog walking next to my dog within like two and a half sessions isn't it like, crazy that shit. it doesn't take that long yeah with, with my the the person holding the leash's mindset yeah yeah well that's what i mean that i think that that's the synergy of what we're we're talking about here is and that's where i think it, where we all have that like we're, like we're all here we're all sitting right here mm-hmm. you know and thousands and thousands of people are also going to sit right here with us and listen to us and, and be with us. And I think because we all love animals, you know, and we love our dogs and somebody says, I'm going to have to kill my dog yeah. or I'm going to have to get rid of my dog. And literally you could just be like, Oh, just, and they're like, and, and that's why I always say too, is like what you were saying, Kyle is once that clicks where you're like, I just, it's to me, and I think you guys can agree maybe is like, to me, it's so, it comes so natural, mm-hmm. like breathing. I'm like, how do you not know how to breathe? Yeah. That's what, that's what sparked my careers. I was like, just do, well, see that, just do this. And then it changed everything, you know, to a degree. I think knowing you and I think you'll probably say the same thing, but like ever since I was super young, I've, I grew up with like three dogs at a time, pretty much in the house. But ever since I was like super young, I've always felt like I've very much understood dogs before I could comprehend like what I was actually understanding like I just kind of got it so it's like I think that that more natural connection to like dogs and just animals in general was like a big thing for me I think so one of the analogies I use for people because no matter how much I teach you whoever you is no matter how much I teach you you may still not be good at it Mm -hmm. no matter how much you understand your brain to your hands, to your reaction time, to reading the body language of the animal, you still may not be good. And the analogy I use is like some people are going to be an NFL quarterback and other people can't throw the football and and make a spiral at 10 feet. They just, no matter how much they practice, they're not athletic. So, and then there's varying degrees of how far you can throw a football and whatever. So some people become proficient at it. Some people become experts at it. And I think that there's, to your point, there's like a natural gift that some people have to look at an animal and say, I know what it's going to do next mm-hmm. and be able to time it. And you can't teach it. No, not really. It's hard. It's really hard to teach it. And people either get it or they don't, because I think some people are naturals at it and just have to be shown and feel it. It's yeah. a feel. Yeah. That's such a good topic of discussion because on the back of this shirt it says dog training is art. And I'm not saying I'm the first person to ever say that, but that's how, so everything that I've done, I think, well, not everything, but a lot of the things that I've done in business have been this 
regurgitation of like, we say this so much, but people don't really understand it. And I want people to talk about it. The no bad dogs thing. And then dog training is art is I think working with dogs, like there's a, there's so many variances of dog. That's why I love talking to you. And there's so many variances of dogs because you can, it's an art form. It really is because like you were saying, I think there's athleticism. You can't teach. There's some people you can't teach to be athletic. Right. I think there's there, there's probably a list out there of things that are naturally genetically maybe given to people. Sure. Genet, um, so like athleticism, being a musician, mm-hmm. um, being like a dancer, like um, being a um, performer. All of these things are art formish. Sometimes the, the it comes so natural to people, and with grooming and shaping and learning and testing it just right and i always tell people like look at some of the like best chefs in the world like gordon ramsay or look at like and we we had this abby and i had this conversation the other day i'm like look at like you know jimmy page or anybody that picks up a guitar and they're just like and you're like what the and it's like well they didn't nobody taught them that they just they just had this natural thing and it's the same thing like with dancing my sister did dance her whole life and she can dance and it's just like this rhythm. It's, she does like ballet and she does hip hop and it's just like this rhythm that she has. I don't have it. Yeah. I can't dance at all, but there's this rhythm that she has. And I'm, I'm assuming like if you're teaching an art form to another person that doesn't withhold the, that particular thing that makes it art, then there's a there's some sort of a barrier yeah a little disconnect they just can't and i I think like working with dogs like you were saying is that's that thing i had is i was like i'm just like that's why i was very insecure and still have moments of insecurity and and uh and also like imposter syndrome uh uh, to to because i was like somebody's like hey can you help me with my dog i'm like yeah sure and i was just like just do this and change that and they're like oh my gosh and same thing with you kyle and same thing with you bob it's like I think there's things that pop up into our head and then what we do is we end up obsessing over it. Mm-hmm. And then you go on, you read the books and you watch videos and you listen to podcasts and you listen and watch and study from all these other people that are doing different things mm-hmm. to develop your craft. Yep. And that's what you did is you had this blend and this mixture of understanding from you know, Caesar because you know, Caesar gets a lot of shit, but if you really think about his life and what he did and not being able to speak English and coming over from Mexico and building this international brand, I don't care, you know, what you think of the guy. It's like that guy grinded, he's probably still grinding his, his whole life. And so anyway, that's a separate conversation, Yeah. but just mix matching like the behavioral stuff that you learned from Caesar at the time. And then your, your, I think your background of hunting Mm -hmm. and being involved with hunting like marrying those two things together. Yeah, exploded. absolutely. It, it, it's been a fun ride, man. I, I can't think of doing anything else again. And I'm, I think I'm fortunate in those years of being a salesman of, at all those different companies and knowing that that's not what I wanted in life. Like there's no mm-hmm. chance you couldn't pay me enough money to go sit behind a computer and bang on Excel spreadsheets and fill my sales funnel again. Screw that noise. You know, I, this is who I am. And now I want to be the best I can be at not only a dog trainer, but a businessman and teach as many people as I can my craft and the things that I've learned over the years of how to do it. And so that's kind of my goal. So we have a podcast as well and it reaches a decent number of people and, and it feels good to help. 
Yeah. You know, I take dog money for training dogs, right? But I can't train everybody. But if I can help you and do it yourself, man, that's that's the unspoken bond right there. Yeah. And, you know, what you said earlier really is interesting to me that throughout the years, um, dogs working alongside of us, mm-hmm. you know, that that's why dogs were invented in the first place. Yeah. Was to be that extension, you know, man's best friend. I know it's not politically correct these days, but let's say human's best friend, right? Sure. And I think it's it's um it's interesting that a lot of people like so we 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 started I started coining this thing, and I, I've never I'm not trying to coin it as mine, but <laughs> I'm careful what I say. Uh, lifestyle trainers, right? Because really, we're not like we're what we do and what you did and what you can still do and other people do is we help dog owners blend in with their dogs. Yeah. I said this last night in a meeting, there's somebody talking about, you know, cause whenever it's so funny when people find out that you work with dogs, it's like finding out that you're a, I don't know, like a pilot, like, Oh, Oh yeah. It's like, I don't even tell people at parties anymore, man. Yeah. It's like, cause Oh, I've got one too. And Oh, she's so sweet, but she'll bite you. Like, Oh yeah, that's cool, man. And then the phone comes out uh, like, look at all the pictures right? and the, which oh. is fine, but it's just like, it, it, it's so anyway, uh, yeah, that's a whole thing. I would just say that it really, what we do is we help people understand their dogs at home and we help them with their problems. We're not dog trainers by traditional sense, historical sense of dog sure. training, like of what you and I probably think about. Kyle is younger than us. So he's grown up in a different generation of what, like my son Banks will think of dog trainers as like a social media like job, I think that's how it's. I bet it probably will be. And it's not a bad thing. It's just like I'm saying that because people are going to make more money off of what they produce on social media as a dog trainer than they would probably. Yep. Want to? I know I do. So it's same. It's going to be a thing. So my my point is, and what I want to talk about is. Well, a lot of people don't get what you get. I don't get it. Um, I don't know if Kyle gets it, but you have a different opportunity to take a dog that was supposed to be doing something genetically, yep. how they were like, you know, yeah. and you're able to say like, hey, you know, Susie and John have this dog and you're like, hey, your dog, I know, like, because I know that you do some breeding too, which we'll talk about, but mm-hmm. your dog was genetically built to do one thing yep. or a couple things. And you have a different uh, opportunity because you get to help them bring that out of the dog. That's right. We put out fires all day. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we, we don't have opportunities to really plug in to what dogs are actually supposed to be doing unless we have enough time to do it. So sometimes we'll say, oh, like we just did a border collie and this, you know, they have a border collie, they have Australian shepherds. And it's like, you guys must live in a farm with cattle and goats and chickens. And you you must be, no, not at all. So sometimes we have an opportunity to educate them on, this is what your dog is supposed to be doing, by the way, which then created the, I call them external problems. The things that we're seeing on the outside is what you think is a problem. And in actuality, it's a lack thereof, like, it's not getting to release who it is. Right. It's bottling up everything internally on a on a dog and saying, "Don't be that. Don't be a fish. Fish can't swim." Right. So, 
it's interesting because you that that's why I think it's so cool and I'm jealous that you get to do that type of stuff because there's been times where I'm like man I'm just going to buy a farm in the middle of Montana and just do um whatever sure you know to test my boundaries of like whatever because <clears throat> I find that so fascinating but for me it's not my passion because I like helping people Sure. You know, that I think I got into dogs because I was naturally had this thing that we were talking about, about like, oh, it's really easy for you to progress. Like yeah. you can just pick it up and do it. You can pick that guitar up and just play it. But I also have a, like, I love helping people. I get excited when I see people with flashers on the side of the road. I'm like, like today I saw people on the side of the road and the cops were there. I'm like, oh, they're good. But I get like, I have this. I love that. And I'm not just saying that to say that. It's just it combining what I do is a is a beautiful harmonious thing because yeah. I love dogs and I love helping people, but how does it feel to to be you and and be able to, to be yeah, to like feel stressful. Yeah. Well, I think everything's stressful. But like you said, you know, I think when you start working with dogs professionally, yeah. You're at that point you're on un, you're unemployable. Nobody can take you from that because you're like, this is an obsession. Is yeah. So to, to kind of double back on what I'm, I'm fortunate to take an animal that it's bred for, right? Like you, that's a duchy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That duchy has a purpose. Mm -hmm. And you playing and bringing that purpose out makes that dog feel fulfilled. Happy. And channels its brain in a healthy way. And it at the end of the day, if that dog could talk, it would say, boy, today was a good day. I got to do what I like, right? So I get these little puppies that are bred to go grab something and bring it towards me. Now let's, like, that's all it's bred to do is go get something and bring it to me. Mm -hmm. And the process of honing, because it already likes it. That's its job. That's what's bred into them. But the process of honing it and making it look pretty um, when challenges arise, you've built confidence and drive and biddability, you know, the ability to be trained. Um, you're working its intelligence, you're, so you're challenging its brain, you're giving it exercise physically, um, and you go home and you see this dog completely chill out because it got to do what it was meant to do. But that process of taking a, like we take dogs at six months old, so you know, my homework for people is get it to like to bring things to you, get it to swim. I'll do the rest and socialize it, get it out, get it confident in any scenario. You know, if you bring me a dog that's scared of walking on hardwood floors, what's it going to do when it's walking on ice? You know, so I want a confident puppy. I want to build retrieve drive. I want it to swim. And if at six months old, I get a puppy like that to then shape that dog into a champion, you know, a fearless Nothing stands in my way. No thorn bush is too tight. No water is too cold. No bird that falls far away is too far away. And to take a dog that at six months old and at a year and a half to two and a half to five and a half, and they're hitting their prime, it's it's uh, a work of a work of art, my friend. Yeah, you it know? is. Yeah, because you're. Work of art. But you're also like again, you have it. You have such a cool, and I. This is why I want my listeners to really understand that a lot of you know our job security is people not understanding what you do. Yeah, sure. So I'll kind of I'll kind of paint the picture of what one of my dogs can do. Yeah, I'd like you to like, or even better yet, like go from the beginning of let's okay, let's say this, which mm -hmm. might actually happen by the way. 
let's say I get a lab mm-hmm. puppy, you know, okay. eight, eight weeks, which my wife is like, you know, we've had working dogs and yeah, you know, we're leaning more towards a pet. So I get a lab eight weeks. Yeah. And I say, hey, Bob, I want this. I want to go. I want to go hunting with you and your your buddies. Mm-hmm. Be in the fields and do all that fun stuff. W- what do you like? What's your process? And you can get as granular as you want because I think it's important. So yeah. So the 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 most granular I would say is you need to do your research on what you know. If your goal is to have a, a great hunting dog, there's plenty of Labradors out there that are not right. So it's, it's genetics. I want to look at the parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. I want to look at health testing, just like you would any, you know, working dog. You want to make sure that you're getting a healthy animal that's got a brain between its ears. And because its parents and grandparents have competed and, and hit accolades, you're stacking the deck in your favor that this puppy's going to like to swim. This puppy's going to like to go and get things and bring it back. You're not going to get a bump on the log Labrador. So there's, like I... I you just go to the newspaper and labs are everywhere. You just pick one out of the hat. It may not have had parents and grandparents and great-grandparents that have ever swam. They're just house pets. Mm-hmm. And so the the population of Labradors has been diluted. So first things first is do your homework, do your research, and buy from a breeder who has dogs that you would want to own. Looks, intelligence, health, and ability to do the job that you're hoping to get. Because there's a big difference between actually one of Katie Matthews questions. Oh, nice. I'll bring it up. All right, yeah, hit it. There, there's a big difference between this, and again, this is this is important for dog owners is you get a like we we talked about this last podcast with our staff like there's so many different flavors of German shepherds, right? People are like oh, I'm yeah. just going to get a German shepherd. And you're like, "Okay, where is it coming from?" Like genetics matter. So one of Katie's questions, Katie's uh, for those of you who don't know, he's a He's a uh, dog trainer as well, and he's a friend of Bob and I, and Bob hosts uh, the Street League. You guys do yeah. Street League with Mike Jones. Yep. So, it one of one, well, first one of the questions is: Is it true that Katie Matthews smells like leather and honeysuckle? But <laughs> <laughs> one of the other serious Does honeysuckle even smell like? I don't know. Not Katie. I can tell you that I've sat <laughs> next to him. <laughs> there you go. There's your answer, Katie. So, what's the difference between a bench lab and a field lab? So, for context, for dog owners who may not know this. A lot of breeds out there have different, there's an umbrella, right? Yeah. So you get a German Shepherd and there's an umbrella, Labs, Goldens, etc. So Big time. So kind of what you were saying is <clears throat> when you're looking for a, a dog that is working Yep. and you, you want, this dog has specifically done something. This is why the, the conversation and some of the controversy from pet owners to working handlers is separate because they're like, oh, you can get a dog to do anything. And you're like, well, I'm not going to spend $10,000 training this dog for three years because the, it's, I'm not going to be a professional basketball player either. I don't right. have those genetics. I am not tall, right? So explain a little bit between that. Yeah, so a, his terminology, bench dog versus field, field dog. Uh, bench meaning show dog. Field dog meaning they go out and hunt, right? So the Labrador breed has sort of been broken up into three categories at this point you've got your english labs that's your show dog that's your bench dog blocky yeah big blockhead big thick chest shorter legs like a little barrel they have been bred for their looks to go and win in the show ring so they didn't care did it have 
uh, did it like to swim? Did it, you know, have trainability? They don't care if it's not trainable at all. Dumb as a box of rocks, but damn, it looks good. And it's going to win in the show ring. I don't want that puppy <laughs> to go hunting with me if it's dumb as a box of rocks and has no desire to go get my duck. But they don't care. They want it to look good. Right. Some of them are dual purpose. And there are breeders out there that want to have the looks, but still bring in the ability, skill level, and, and desire to go do the job. Fewer and far between, I would say. That's general speaking. Don't DM me. <laughs> Number two would be the American Lab. That would be his fe- what he's considering a field-bred lab is an American Lab. And in America, we like things fast, hard-charging, little rockets, right? We want to build it faster, bigger, stronger, you know. No brakes. No brakes, all gas, right? They tend to be a little bit taller, a little bit leaner, um, super athletic, and the desire is through the roof to go do their job, again, generally speaking. Then there's the British lab, and this has become... Wait, sorry. Yeah, go. There's a difference between a British lab and an English lab. Correct. Okay. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, dude. Okay. Uh, So a British lab is directly from the UK. So England, Ireland, and Scotland. You can obviously breed them in America, but they can't. If they bred a British lab to my dog, an American lab, you are not allowed to consider it a British lab, those puppies anymore. They have to be from descendants straight from the UK. Now, who, who cares about that? The I mean, people who sell British labs and want to make more money off of them. But how, how, no, no, yeah, that's exactly kind of the answer. But are they registering them for a certain like trial or show ring? Because my point is, is who cares? Meaning, like when you when when you say like, oh my my lab bred with uh, this this British lab. Who's gonna? Who's the person that is like, no, 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 it's not full blood. The pinky up British lab people are. Okay. And I, I, listen, I got people, good friends of mine, that that's all they do is breed British labs, but it's, it is the pinky up style of it's pure. So it's kind of like a Harry Potter. Yeah. Like a muggle. Yeah, dude. It's like a muggle versus like a purebred or pure blood. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, these British labs are, are very athletic. They tend to have a, um, or at least what they market, the British lab folks market is more calm, more off switch better nose, um, and not diluted like the American labs have been. They but they're t- working? Yeah, they're, so they're working dogs. Their style of hunt tests and field trials in England is very different than ours. Um, they're trying to produce the most chill dog possible, and then when you say their name, they go and get it. Um, our dogs, are we want faster, stronger, farther, harder, and so maybe don't think so much. Don't be so calm because you've got to have the grit to get out there. Um, so that's the three style of labs to answer KD's question. They're all a Labrador. It's just when you're doing your research, if you want a duck dog, don't go and get one out of the paper because it may have not used its instincts in 40 years of breeding. And therefore it's not as ingrained in it as if you were to get a puppy from me and it comes out of the womb looking for a duck. Mm, right. So I just Googled uh, what they look like. I'm interested. And um, so the, so AKC recognizes them, right? That's yeah. what this says. Yep. So they, they almost look like, they look more blocky, though, than a field, right? Well, shame on AKC, because I would say those are all English labs. 
AKC British Labrador Retriever and the American Labrador Retriever. So maybe there's a... It's probably yeah. not a good picture, but... Well, so that's what I'm saying. They've had like a clip art of a bunch of different colored labs. A British lab is going to... For the novice, it would look like an American lab. Ath- super athletic. Yeah. How's that look? Yeah. A little sportier? A little sportier. They're definitely athletic. They're they're smaller framed. They're not big block-headed barrels. Um, but if you put my dog and a British dog and they ran, like they took a straight line, go to a duck, I could 100% of the time go, that's a British lab. Their tails work a little bit differently. Mm. They have a little bit different of a forehead and snout. There's just slight baby differences because it's my world that I could say British lab. Wow. I see. I didn't even, did you know that that was a British lab? No. See, that's cool. Yeah, it is cool. And, and they're good dogs. I mean, I, I think that that little niche of British lab breeders really market themselves exceptionally well that we've got the gentleman's gun dog. We've got, got this calm house pet that can lay by the fire and then go get your ducks in the morning where it's still a lab, dude. Like some of them aren't calm at all. Some of them aren't, uh, I don't know. They're, Are they all black? No, they all, all three colors. Um, for whatever reason in the UK, chocolates are not as, uh, what's the word? Preferred. So you see more yellow, fox red, dark yellow, mm. uh, and black labs coming from the UK than chocolates. But yeah, there's chocolate British, British labs. Is there f- the fox labs? Those are like the Auburn kind of orangish. Yeah. So AKC Labradors is black, yellow, and chocolate. So controversial if you have a silver lab (laughs) (laughs) yes you bought you bought a very expensive labrador that those breeders used diluted genes mutations in the gene to breed what is it so this is a conversation we have all the time right or or a weimaraner mix which is i think what we see a lot so what's a silver lab so good question and good point with the weimaraner mix i don't know if that Weimaraner mix is truth or fairy tale. Some, some, some people say that's how they got the diluted gene yeah. into the Labrador, but I'm not 100% certain because there's even like black and tan Labradors. They look like a Rottweiler. Like they'll mm. have brown tips on their eyebrows, brown snout, brown feet. Mm. It's a genetic mutation in the coat. Um, so these breeders who are breeding silver labs or charcoal labs or champagne labs. I've seen those recently. Champagne labs. We don't don't want a silver lab. We want a champagne lab. That's right. It's good marketing. It's very bubbly. (laughs) Zing. So so these dogs have been bred with a genetic mutation on purpose to create a different color. What those people don't give a crap about, typically, I'm going to actually say typically, They aren't caring about the health clearances. They aren't caring about intelligence. They aren't caring about all the things that make a really healthy, good dog. They are saying, I don't care about you or you. You have the genetic mutation. Let's make money. Well, I think it's the same thing with uh, the designer, like Frenchies. It's exactly what it is. It's a designer for a dog. And it's like people don't realize the implications of like when you breed for those looks, you're also probably going to have behavioral issues too. A lot of the times. Dude. So one of the problems with Silver Labs is their coat is jacked up. So if it's not thick and good, they have tons of allergies, they have 
they'll go bald. They have a lot of really bad implications that you don't hear about from that breeder because they just want to sell you a puppy. And it's the new in thing to have over the last five years or something. And it's, it's really bad. I mean, the whole point of, you know, you save, you guys save a lot of dogs, right? And there's probably a ton of your listeners that are like, save, don't breed. Right. You know, that's a, a common discussion that Adopt, people don't shop. That's right. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. You demand. <laughs> um, if you're going to bring life into this world, do it responsibly. Mm-hmm. Don't do it for the money. It's nice, but don't do it for the money. Make sure that I've, I've bought and sold dogs that there was something about them I didn't like. And therefore, if they had puppies, I don't want someone else to have to possibly deal, deal with that. Neurotic, um, you know, super vocal and barky. And these are behaviors that you don't want as a duck dog. You want them nice and quiet and level-headed. A ton of drive, but level-headed. You start breeding crackheads and, you know, terrible coats and bad hips and you name it. Just to make a dollar, that's the inappropriate use of breeding. Yeah, and I and I think you know we see that all the time with sh- with shepherd. Like oh. they'll be like yeah. a dog will walk in and we'll be like we know exactly where you got that dog. Yeah, yeah. the Amish guy down the road, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. We're we're super close to Pennsylvania and then upstate New York. We have a we have a massive yeah. influx of just Amish bred dogs. Same a lot us. of a lot of Aussies and a lot of just. Uh, German shepherds. Yeah. Yeah. And they're getting into the doodles. Yeah. Doodling everything. (laughs) So, Bob, you, you grew, did you grow up in Western New York or where where did you? Well, for you, you'd consider it Western. We call it central. (laughs) But but it's closer to Syracuse. Yeah. 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 So my suburb, I grew up in the suburbs of Syracuse. I was 20 minutes away from the city and our farm is 30 minutes north. Yeah. That's definitely Western. That's central. Buffalo is western. This is upstate New York for me. I'm from. It's west from here. (laughs) Yeah, it's west from here. It's west from here, which is west. So, yeah, one thing you know, the distinction, and we're going to go back to your training upbringing in a minute. Yeah, this is the beauty of podcasting. Yeah, we can do whatever we want. Do whatever we want. Um, Hopefully, people like it. (laughs) Oh, they will. I'm. I'm, Who cares? I like it. Yes, I know they're going to. If I like it, they're going to like it because we're learning. Sure, and I and I love learning about dogs and the people and the culture about dogs. Yeah, which I'm really diving into is like the culture. Like that's what I I'm like. Why? why? Anyway, so one thing I want to have a distinction about, and maybe that you know we started to touch on a little bit. Mm-hmm. There's a huge separation of pet lovers, dog owners, mm-hmm. and professionals with the working lines and then what we see, right? So we see so much as a professional, professional dog trainers who primarily focus on lifestyle training. There's typically a behavioral problem and the dog is completely out of control and it's all been predicated off of how they've raised the dog. So we have to go in through via the owner to say, your dog is the way that it is because of you typically. And I would also add to that, they got the wrong dog for their yes. lifestyle. They thought it looked cool. They didn't know what they're getting. It's the it's the German short-haired pointer in Manhattan. Yeah. Like, what? Oh, yeah, we see that all the time. Yeah, yeah dude. That dog's supposed to run 20 miles a day looking for birds, not walk on a leash in Manhattan in your 400-square-foot apartment. <laughs> That's a big apartment down there. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> but I was, I was just saying, like, so when you're talking about like what you do, and this is why I, I want to dive into this, because I think if we can open up the sport world of dogs on a bigger scale, pet owners will have a better understanding of 
why you guys do what you do and why genetics are play such a crucial role. Because if you want a, like your whole thing is, so let's say your, your demographic, I would assume are middle-aged to older men in the outdoor space, hunting space. True. Okay. I would actually, I would say I'm, I'm in the mix of the, the 30 year old family right? The 30-year-old who's starting a family, has a job, loves to duck hunt, and finally has the income to, you know, to spend on a well-bred dog because they don't have time after work to put the time in. So I would say anywhere between 30 and 70. Cool. Yeah. That's cool to know. And a fair amount of women. Good. Yeah. That's cool. Yep. And they just, they want to go out hunting. They want to go out hunting or they enjoy the competition stuff and they enjoy women tend to have that emotional tie to that dog of like seeing the dog do what it was bred to do and how happy that dog is doing it gives them a ton of fulfillment. Yeah. So they may not, like I have one client, she's the sweetest woman in the world. I don't want to put an age on her, but she's older than me. Um, single, does well for herself, bought a super well-bred Labrador and I had done obedience for her on, on a different dog of hers. And she's like, do you think Lizzie would like this? I'm like, hell yeah, Lizzie would like it. Send it. And she got bit by the bug watching Lizzie mm. do what she loves. Right. Like she's not just a house pet. And so now that woman has joined a hunting club and has learned to shoot guns. And it's totally taken her at, let's just say, 45 into a different direction in her life that she never even knew that she liked. She loves taking Lizzie on hikes and bringing a gun. And Yeah, and I think it also having the dogs that you have and and I may be wrong cuz I just was wrong there traditionally I think the average person that has a dog so somebody's at home right now and they're like damn I have a field x yeah but I don't really want to go out hunting there's having these dogs doesn't necessarily mean that they have to hunt they just have to do retrieval so there's like sure shed hunting and yeah dude give your dog its purpose right yeah you don't You're, have to you, it could be any breed but if we're talking specifically labs and you have a dog that is just a house pet, but has a lot of energy and you're trying to do something more with it. Maybe it's agility. Maybe like give it some sort of way to use its brain that will trigger its instincts to make it feel fulfilled and you will have a more enjoyable dog in your house, mm-hmm. right? So if you're the house, you know, the family with a house pet and you have a really well-bred Labrador that's got a lot of energy, there are steps that you can take. You, ne- you don't have to go duck hunting. The dog will never know the difference. It gets to go and and use its brain and learn and grow, and you grow a relationship with your dog, and it becomes a fun thing to go out in the backyard or the field to work that dog. So shed hunting, even just using the – you don't want to touch ducks. There's bumpers and training devices that is not dead animals, and that dog doesn't know the difference. It just knows it's doing what it's made for. Mm -hmm. And they don't care if it's alive or not. No. And then there's plenty of people in my niche that never have duck hunted a day in their life but they got bit by the training bug and got bit by, well, we got to this level, what's next? And they see another dog do something amazing like run a blind retrieve and stop on a whistle and change direction. Well, I want that now. And they get bit by the bug and they run hunt tests mm-hmm. and field trials. So they don't, you don't have to be a hunter to get into our sport by any means. A lot of them don't. Yeah. Yeah, and, I, and so yeah, it's a great point. And I think the listeners out there, 
if they have a dog, they don't, it's not an overwhelming, because I think people get very overwhelmed where they're like, man, all that, like, you know, Bob's been doing it for so long and blah, blah, blah. But I think for the average dog owner, like Facebook is a place where you can just search like a, you know, a hunting group in your area or oh, sure. like a whatever. A club. Yeah, a club. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up having one of my best friends did a lot of beagle stuff. So sweet. Yeah. I, I learned the beagle and hair club and how they operate that. And, um, and the amount of work that goes into the property yeah. to keep the hairs fenced in and well taken care of. Cause they're not, they don't, they just, they don't kill them. They ju- yeah. They just trying. trial them. Right. Yeah. They try the beagles. And I learned like, I'll tell you that story in a minute, but before it, I lose this track is I'm caught in the middle of somebody who just helps their dog at any level. Now, if somebody wanted a specialty service dog training, hunting, I would, I would, refer out to specialists like yourself sure but overall i can pretty much like if you have a problem with your dog or you want your dog to be doing something and a lifestyle i could help you so when you're talking about working dogs and i have a lot of friends that are in law enforcement that are canine people as well which we're going to have in the podcast in the future you know, they may get shamed for like, you, you, you should go to the shelter and get a, a mixed dog for the back of that car. I mean, th- and it's like, there's a disconnect of dog lovers don't understand when you're doing work, Yeah, the genetics matter. So when you have that beagle or that lab searching Madison Square Garden for a bomb that could blow up the entire thing and kill thousands of innocent people. You know, the genetics of that dog matter. We have to be dependent. Did mom and dad do really great forever? Do we know the genetics? Yeah. Is that like, that's something that I think, again, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way because I think training in general, like if, if pet owners knew what absolute savages dogs actually are and not this couch potato Instagram famous dog that's sitting there with glasses and a cape on yeah. and they realize like, and there's nothing wrong with that. Having fun with your dog and making cute shit is there's nothing wrong with that. But right. the disconnect in the politics of dogs, that's where it happens. You get pet lovers who've never seen a working dog. That's right. That like, you know, we talk about e-collars and all sorts of oh, different types of tools. That, that first thing came to my head is all the people that think e-collars are bad. It's like they don't they just don't understand and haven't seen a dog they probably haven't had the opportunity to see a dog work with an e-collar and how that dog responds and how happy that dog is because it understands what that tool means and how to work with it. And then again, I think e-collars build more confidence in dogs and they get to have more freedom and be a dog. Yeah. You're not holding them down under your thumb because of an e-collar. Right. You're gifting them more life. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, see that all the time and I'm very passionate about it and I'm not interested in winning an argument. I'm interested in helping dogs. That's right. So I don't try to have arguments with people. I just, my job is to give people different perspectives of, uh, you know, like when they tried to pass the e-collar thing here in New York state, um, they basically were trying to pass a law that said that uh, people like you and I couldn't sell the remote collars. And I was like, look, you're not going to, you're not going to hurt my business, right? You're going to hurt dogs, right? Right. I mean, you're going to hurt people who need these things. And more importantly, the people like you and I that are using them correctly to give a dog freedom and to put the finishing cinnamon sugar on their training. But there's, you know, the the marketing that they use behind it is so political. They have these like cute little puppies and these people smiling and they're like, 
band shock collars. Yeah. And then there's your dog, you know, Buck and all your clients that are like, I just want to go. And, and you're trying to keep them safe. Nope, that's a deer. Nope, that's that's a car. Nope, that's the road. And we're just trying to navigate them. And, and that's like, the, you know, we can't, we just have to understand dogs as a whole is not your dog at home because you're a pet owner. And you assume that because your dog doesn't want to do shit, wants to lay on the couch and is very timid and insecure and fearful and emotional, you can't, first of all, you shouldn't be making rules about an entire state's dogs. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, again, just getting back to genetics, um, I think that that's an important thing that I'm pretty passionate about because I do play both sides. Like I understand, Hey, look, if you're not going to spend a life with this dog hunting and doing a specific job, go and get whatever you want. Yeah. But at the same time, understand why your clients, you, your friends, your colleagues, people across the country, across the world, get these dogs for a very specific reason. And there's nothing wrong with buying a dog that you know is going to live for a long time. Yep. You don't have to worry about hip dysplasia at six and you have to put your dog down at six and ruin the whole family's like, you know, it's terrible. And then the cancers Mm -hmm. and the aggression and the behavior I have a, my favorite dog that I've ever had was Lola and I got her. She lived until she was 18 and she was, I shouldn't say favorite. It's not a good word. Um, probably my, mo- my most well-rounded behaved dog was a dog that I adopted from the SPCA mm-hmm. randomly on a weekend when I was in middle school. And she just passed away last year and she lived 18 years plus something like that. We don't really know for sure, but there's nothing wrong with getting a dog that is mixed or from the shelter. And in fact, I encourage people to do it if you're not looking for something in particular. Yeah. But people need to educate themselves on why people like yourself go out and get a dog that's been, you're going to spend five, four, three thousand dollars on because you know that the genetics and the pedigree are going to be legit and you don't have to worry about putting your dog down at six or your dog is out. And it's not even about putting your dog down. It's about your dog having the orthopedic abilities to go out there and do the job that they need to do. Yeah. So how I look at it is you're stacking the deck in your favor. If you have a goal in mind yeah, of a working dog and we'll just use the duck hunting for the example, because I'm the one here. But if I'm looking for a companion to take duck hunting for the next 12 years, I want to stack the deck in my favor that it's going to be able to do that job or else you're going to possibly get that couch potato or, you know, super spooky or doesn't like to swim. And now you have this dog for 13 years that you can't do what you got it for. So if I'm, if I have a goal in mind, I'm going to do the best I can to achieve that goal. And one of those is doing the right research on the right breeder and the right parents and the right health tests to stack the deck in your favor that you're going to get a dog that's an investment both emotionally and financially and time Mm -hmm. that the next 13 years you're going to have something that you can go out and work and have fun with and build a relationship with so i'm i'm a proponent of you know adopting as well i mean i don't i don't care Mm -hmm. realistically and that may sound like an a-hole thing to say but i don't care what you do but if you have a goal do the best you can to make that goal a reality. And so if you have a goal to have a duck dog, buy a duck dog and train it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, I just wanted to kind of go down that rabbit hole a little bit for somebody like yourself because the same thing, I don't care. Like if you don't need the dog to do anything, go and adopt a dog that needs a home. Yeah. But also I think just don't, just have, have, have an understanding 
What's oh. your perspective? Can I uh, steal yeah. it for a second? What's your perspective on or advice you give people when they say they want to adopt? A dog, just in general? Yeah. I'm going to adopt a new dog. I, I don't really know what I'm doing, and I'm going in a shelter. What do you do? What do you tell them? Well, first thing that I would tell them is it's a lot like dating apps, right? So you have to lay out what, you, what your lifestyle is, what you like, just like what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I hike every weekend, and I swim in the summers, and I ski in the whatever, and this is my lifestyle, and my partner's the same way. Mm-hmm. And our kids are gone, and, or we don't have kids, we don't plan to. And when you go to the shelter, to be honest, we had this conversation before about shelters and like what you get. They don't know. A lot of these guys, no. they have no idea. They're just trying to get this dog out of the shelter. That's right. With respect. I mean, they, that's their job, you know. And the dogs need homes. But you just have to really do your due diligence and spend time with the dog. And, and the recommendation is always try to st- stack up, like, what your lifestyle is and what this dog could potentially be. Yeah. If you can get a dog that has very clear <clears throat> a pedigree of um, a dominant, like, oh, this is a terrier or this is a shepherd or this is a lab mix. You'll have an idea of what this dog may want to do. Right. Not always like, it's not always a guarantee, but that's the way I look at it for adopting new dogs is it's like a Tinder or dating app or whatever they are, you know? And so when you go in, also understand that the dog in the shelter is not the dog you're going to see at home in two weeks because right. they've been incarcerated for two years and for better or for worse. Right. Sometimes they're lunatics. So I just tell people, if you can get a shelter or an organization to give you two weeks with the dog as a trial to make sure it's a good fit, because if you, like you said, if you, if you buy a dog or you adopt a dog to say, Hey, I'm going to be hiking every weekend. I'm going to be hunting every weekend. I'm going to be traveling every weekend. And you get a dog and then they sit on the couch and they're, they hate, they shake like this and they vomit on themselves in the car or in the truck going to trial. I'm going to put the dog back into the shelter and try another dog because that dog is going to be miserable forever. And somebody else may have the opportunity to make that dog's life better. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I think, uh, the scary part for me when people tell me they're going to go to the shelter is humans think way too emotionally. They are, we are a soft, Oh yeah. Sad, sappy, like romanticized about that one gave me the eyes. That's what I'm saying. That one came up to me and licked my fingers. That one stick scared in the corner. Oh, I just want to give it a home, right? And so I worry that people don't go into it objectively mm-hmm. and, and say, what is my lifestyle and goal for me and this animal? How much energy can I put into this animal? Um, give it a fair shot of uh, identifying what the breed is. And an example I have is years ago when I was doing the behavioral stuff, going to homes, this young family rescued a red bone coonhound that came up from the South and had zero skills. He lived in a pack and probably was the ass kicker of the pack. And he was a mean son of a bitch, just mean spirited, man. You know, if he didn't want to do it, that hound came out in him and he was stubborn as a rock and you couldn't, treats didn't matter. Like nothing made this dog do what you wanted it to do and he learned that if he bit you he got what he wanted Mm -hmm. right so i don't want him on the couch i grab his collar pull him off bite i don't want to go in the crate bite i don't want to come out of the crate bite and people would leave him alone and he just learned if i do this then i get to do whatever i want and that was a classic example of the shelter wanted to find that dog a home and they didn't care where it went it just got a home 
They want it out of their hair. That's right. And this family still has that dog and it's still a pain in the butt. Yeah. And I mean, did it get better? Yeah. But he still had it in him that at any minute, if he didn't want to do it, he knew how he could get it to stop. And that's scary. So I, I'm, I just encourage people, you know, to, to be mindful, be objective. Don't just fall in love with the first one you see in the cage and spend time with it. Take it for a walk. You know, what is the body language of the dog telling you when you're on these walks? You know, is it fearful? Is it reactive? You know, and do you want to take that challenge on or do you need to hire yeah. <laughs> these guys? Well, I think, I think too, like it's a, it's a genetic lottery. Like, yeah. I mean, some dogs you're not going to know until they're nine, ten months. They start maturing. I, mean, I got lucky with my dog. And, like, I, before him, I was very much um, not not adopt, not shopped. But I was like, I, I will never need to buy a dog from a breeder. Sure. It's the more I've gotten into the world. I mean, I got him five years ago yeah. almost. So now that, that I know a lot more, I know a lot more about genetics. I'm just a lot more educated on it. I'm like... I'm probably never going to get a shelter dog again because like none are going to do what he does, which like I want an active dog that I can hike with. I can do fancy fun obedience with not yeah. for sport, just for fun. I like sure. doing it, but maybe getting to bite work, stuff like that. And it's like, I, I can do that stuff with him, but like 99.9% of the time, you're not going to get that from a shelter. Yeah. Yeah, dude. I, I, I think it's still a great topic. I think it's a great uh, thing to do for dogs. And, and I actually, part of like one of my goals in business is to do uh educated walkthrough of a shelter, save one a month mm-hmm. and have people lined up on a list to say, I want you to train it. I want you yeah. to pick it for my family. And it's just like, almost like the nonprofit feel like we're just going to go, you tell me what you want. I'm going to go find it. So you don't emotionally attach to what it looks like. I'll find it. We'll put obedience on it so that you can enjoy it off leash and, and walk nice on a leash down the road. You get the dog. And that, that would be a cool little like give back to our, our world. I know you kind of do that stuff too, don't you? Yeah. And it's, it's something that we, you know, I think everybody that works with dogs on a behavioral level, that's, I think everyone has that goal. Yeah. Like we're just help one at a time. The problem is just to be honest. uh, Well, yeah. Honest. And and also like glasses half full is, you know, I've had some friends uh, and colleagues that have done things on, you know, national television things for seasons after seasons, and it's successful, and you, you, you kind of go to the shelter, you get the dog, you get it out, and the problem is, is like, once you are the person that said, hey, I handled this dog, I trained this dog, you go home with the dog, the moment that there's an issue, you then become responsible in the fallback of that dog, because we've had those ideas too, yeah. it's like, man, why don't we just go to the shelter get out three or four dogs, create some content, find them homes. Yeah. But now you have three or four dogs that you don't really know that well. Like you've trained them for like a month, which is great under you. Right. Yeah. So I know what I'm I'm doing. Right. And then you adopt the dog out because it's the right thing to do, which is great. So I think at scale, it would probably be good. We thought about things like this. My only concern would be you're the first and we're not a kennel or a shelter. Right. And either are you, you know, right. so it's, you're the first fallback if they're like, well, we, you know, dad got a new job over here and well, Bob, we can't take the dog, man. And now because you're a good person and you like dogs. I take it back. <laughs> yeah, you're right, dude. I, I, so how many dogs do you own? One? One. You got to up your game. You got one? Yeah. He's younger than me though. So we, I would. I got 12. <laughs> that are yours? Yeah, dude. I can't stop. Puppy fever. But but listen, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the disconnect. The, you have 12 dogs. We both have one. Yeah. 
you are the lifestyle and culture yeah. of what you do is so much different from a pet owner at home. That's right. You tell somebody you have 12 dogs, they're going to go, what? You tell a beagle owner that you have 12 dogs, they're like, that's it? That's it, exactly. right? You got somebody that runs trials and they got they got tie-outs all day. And they're all over the hills, right? Dude. Like you have 12. Mine come to work every day. Right. You know, they, they get to go do their job every day. And at the end of the night, they get to go inside and, and be house dogs. And we rotate them. I don't have 12 in the house at once. And that, that can be controversial too, but... That's just who I am. We have a breeding program. We compete, and I love every single one of them for different reasons. I do. I do have my favorites. I just do. Uh, well, when you have twelve, it's easier. When yeah, you have right. well, one or two, it's not. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But uh, you know, we like I, I literally do get puppy fever every time we have a litter. I'm like, man, you know, we could. Uh, yeah, could keep one. So I get. So you have a. So you're from from here, Western New York, but you're in Syracuse, Central yeah. New York. Yeah. And then you have a place in South Carolina. Yeah. Right? So, so again, everybody, I, I train hunting dogs, right? And in winter in central New York, it's sucky. You can't do what I do outside in the wintertime and make the dogs as best as I can. I can maintain things. I can exercise them. But am I really teaching and building or am I just maintaining and wasting time? So a few years ago, one of my clients from South Carolina said, We've got a two-acre fenced-in yard. We've got a barn. Come on down. So we did. We rented an Airbnb, and I spent three or four months down south and got out of the winter of central New York, and we trained and competed and haven't not gone back. So we leave next week, and we go to Charleston for a month, and then we'll be in Camden, South Carolina for about six six weeks or so. And it just gives me the opportunity to get the dog swimming, you know, have no snow on the ground, not dealing with freezing rain and slush like we had this morning. Like, it's just an uh, amazing opportunity to be a 35-year-old snowbird, mm. you know, since, you know, for the last five, six, seven years. I'm jealous. Yeah, dude. It's, it, I'm very fortunate. I'm very fortunate. Not everybody can. You know, a lot of the southern guys, they come up north in the summer because in Georgia, it's 98 degrees and you can't run a dog in that kind of heat. And humidity. And humidity. You're you're working at, as soon as the sun comes up, you work for three hours, too hot, take a siesta, and at five o'clock you go back out when the sun's going down and cooling off. Like, they grind, a different grind in the summertime, but a lot of them travel north to get our cooler weather, and so that's what I do. When it gets crappy out, I go south. When you're in Camden, mm -hmm. do you have a house there that you live in, or what, how does that work? Yeah, so, um, again, I'm lucky. I got an opportunity there's a, a woman down there who her and her late husband are field trial trainers for labradors and they have about a 150 acre farm with rolling hills and giant ponds that we can train on and she has little log cabins that i don't know when they built them but they're they're rustic and she fell in love with me and and she's like a family member now so we go in camden there and spend time and um, my assistant has her little cabin. I've got mine. My fiance can work from anywhere. So she comes and works from there. And that's great. Yeah, dude, it's not bad. Now, when I have kids, life's going to change. Um, maybe yeah. for the first few years, they'll go with me, but when they go have school, it may be dad is gone for three, four weeks. They come down on February break. I come home, you know, fly home or something. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but you figure it out. It's very, uh, our niche, ton of divorce rate. Really? Yeah. Because you guys are just. All the time. 
Yeah. It's like being a farmer. That's so, you know, here, I'm not sure, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would imagine you're not a kennel, right? So these dogs either go home with your employees and come back in the mornings or however you work it. But we have at any given time, my dozen up to 40 something dogs on my farm. Wow. So with that being said, like someone's got to let them out at five thirty six in the morning. Someone's got to let them out at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. You know, if I go out to dinner and it's 10 PM, Carrie goes inside and lets our house dogs out. I walk to the kennel and kick dogs loose and I stand by myself while they go potty. And then I can be done for the night and it's seven days a week. Right. And, and so until I had employees and grew to the size where I can delegate and say, you're on the morning routine, you're on the evening routine, and I can work a 10-hour day, right, mm-hmm. um, training, and then drop the trailer and, you know, the employees come out and feed in there and care and clean and stuff. But for, for six years of my career, it was seven days a week, never had breakfast with Carrie, never had dinner with Carrie because I was caring for animals. That's your fiance. Yeah, yeah. So it's a tough lifestyle and we travel a lot. So from when I get home in April, May, June, July, August, September, most weekends I'm gone. Wow. Competing. Yeah. And if you want to be great at it, you got to go and do it. And if your clients want these accolades for their dogs, you got to go and do it. Yeah. And you better damn pass. Right? Yeah. There's a lot of sacrifices. It is. That has to happen in order to. Yeah. People think we just go out and play with dogs. And like I said, I would never change it. This is what I do for a living. This is what makes me happy. You know, building everything we've all talked about this whole podcast. But the sacri- people don't understand the sacrifices that someone who has a kennel and living animals, it's like being a farmer. You don't, you, you know, until you grow to the size where you can have responsible employees that show up mm-hmm. and don't call in. And, you know, I'm in, I went to Costa Rica last week. It's like, I can't get a phone call in Costa Rica like, hey, I'm sick. No, bud, you're not sick. You're going to let dogs out. There's no such thing as, you know, Mm -hmm. I can't get up this morning. No, you're up. So, yeah. I think that's just, you know, being a business owner in general. That's true, too. And, you know, what you were saying earlier, I forgot to mention. I think that there's a different type of intelligence. There's business intelligence, and then there's intelligence, right? I'm not sure I got either. So, well, (laughs) you do. I mean... A lot of businesses don't make it, right? right? So what is it, like 5% of, or no, 5% of businesses make it after three years or something like that. I'm sure yeah. the statistics have changed after um, the virus. But regardless, like, I, that popped in my head earlier, and I wanted to say something that I feel, I, you know, when you when you run a successful business as a kid, like my grandfather was a farmer, mm-hmm. and then he was a real estate he uh, he was in World War II as a Marine, and so he kind of like he he was self made, right? Mm-hmm. That was really inspiring to me. It's probably where I got a lot of my like entrepreneurship, yeah, my juice, you know. Yeah. And uh, he did all of that, you know. He came back with a couple bucks in his pocket and kind of built his way up and um, had farms and anyway. But there's a different, there's a significant difference because I got buddies that you know go to Harvard esque type schools. And I can't even hardly have a conversation with them because they just think differently. Not good or bad. Yeah, just yeah, like they're, they're just so intelligent. Like, Man, you're too smart for me. Yeah. Too intelligent for me. But they would never be able to open up a successful business ever. Because so I just wanted to say that because when we when we talk business, that's something I mention all the time. That people like yourself who are kind of self-made and climb through the trenches to get to where you're at to find a specialty. Mm-hmm. 
and maybe didn't take the traditional collegiate route yeah um to what you're doing in yeah. a way yeah um, there's there's something to be said about owning a successful business and the sacrifices that's why i'm bridging these two together the yeah. sacrifices that you have to make and there's a lot of emo emotional intelligence that goes into planning out like you are you already kind of have an idea of what you probably want in the next five years and you're working towards that every day and absolutely i just wanted to throw that out there give yeah. yourself a little bit more credit ah, thanks man i appreciate it yeah it's definitely a sacrifice your brain i don't know how you are but the minute i wake up it's on and the minute i go to bed it's off and sometimes i wake up in the middle of the night and it's on yeah um i think about dogs all the time i have carrie will wake me up and be like you're you're freaking dreaming again and it's no here no here <laughs> knock it off quiet <laughs> like buck, buck yeah come here knock it off and uh, so, yeah, it's, it's every inch of what I do revolves around the dogs and their well-being and their care. And then on top of just caring for animals and making sure they're healthy, I've got to make them a badass, right? So if you don't train it, it's evident that you didn't do your job because yeah. they didn't perform. So if you, you know, I think sometimes maybe the behavioral, this would be a cool segue. Like I would err on the side of and I want your opinion on, I think behavioral problems are sometimes just marbles loose in their head. Like not every human is as smart as others. And so there may be a few screws loose that no matter how much training, education on the owner, work we do can kind of tweak to make a perfect animal. They're, they're individuals, right? And, and I think you can do the best job you can and that dog's still kind of a, of a tweaker. It's better, but it's still a little bit different. And, but it's evident that you didn't do your job if it goes back to the owner and it's exactly the same, mm -hmm. right? So you have to put in the time, you have to put in the reps, you have to teach, you have to expose all the things to that dog so that when it goes home, it's right. And that's stressful when you see that dog and it's not where it should be and you've got to put more time into it and build more. And that's probably one of the toughest parts of my job. And I would wonder if that's yours where you're like, this, he's just not right. He's just not ready, and, and he's been here long enough, or we've been working with them long enough, and it should be better. And and that's that stresses me out. So that's why I, you know, one more. Let's you know, let's stay till seven o'clock tonight. You know, yeah. let, let's get this done. Um, it's hard for me to not have them be successful. Yeah, and Kyle can talk about this too a little bit. There's a lot of pressure, right? You know, <sighs> like especially when you make a name for yourself, and or somebody, um, you know, who may be a famous, you know, celebrity or athlete or then they're like, Hey man, you're the guy, go ahead and do your thing. And you're like, Oh boy. Oh boy. Time to be on. Yeah. And, but your dog doesn't have that. So to go to your, you know, I'll let Kyle talk about this. Cause this is something like they do. The, so we do have, um, we don't have a kennel in a sense. We have, we have board and trains that stay here. Okay. We'll take at the most, I think 12 dogs. Yeah. 10, 12. The most. And, mm -hmm. um, they're cared for from 6.30 a to 6a to 9, 9.30 at night, you know, yeah, yeah, nonstop, us, yep. nonstop, but that's it. We, we're, we're looking for quality over quantity, but it is our responsibility. We have a reputation to withhold, but we also care a lot about the dogs that we have, but there are certain dogs that have some sort of even like a uh, some sort of retardation. That's why I explain it to people. I'm like, you know, there's just some people who have a disability. Yeah. 
in a learning disability, a functioning disability, not wrong, right, or indifferent. You're just up against a different stack. That's right. And some dogs, that can be as silly as like, we had this dog. I don't think you were, you might have been around when we had it. We had this German Shepherd. Zach definitely was. We had this German Shepherd. <laughs> Bro. He. I think I know who you're talking He was just, just like sweet. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and those are the dogs that we can keep around. Yeah, yeah, Talk yeah. about like genet, um, behavioral euthanasia. That's like the other side where there's a screw loose, definitely, mm-hmm. but they're just goofballs. Yeah. And you, we have to be honest with the owner after about week one, after we do like an onboarding program, like we, week one would be onboarding for us. We're going to, let's figure this thing out. Let's yeah. get things What does going. it know already? What needs to be better? Yeah. Diagnostic plug-in yeah. from a pro, pros. Yeah. And- there's some times where we're like, look, you know, we know that you signed up originally for X. And just so you know, we're going to do everything we can in our power to get you there. Mm-hmm. But your dog either needs to stay an additional two weeks or um, it's not going to happen because we have so many layers to peel off first before we get to what you want. Oh, yeah. Realistically. That's one of the worst phone calls to make, by the way. It does suck because it doesn't happen to us because we do, you know, over the years – I've been doing, I don't know how long I've been doing this. I've, I'm doing this long enough to make mistakes and learn from them. Mm-hmm. I want to make mistakes so I can learn from them. Because if you're not making mistakes, you're not getting better, in right. my opinion. Not challenging Just, yourself. Just, you know, your mistakes have to be ethical mistakes and, <laughs> you know, not life-threatening mistakes, right? Sure. But um, we've, we've done a good enough job at filtering and consulting with people. And we can tell, like, hey, we have a waiting list, so if this doesn't work out, you may want to search for somebody else because we're not going to give you those false expectations. But um, we see that all the time in the boarding train. That shepherd, okay, this shepherd would take a take a piss and drink it at the same time. Oh, yeah. I know who you're talking. You know what I'm talking about? He was like a year old. He would he like he would pee. That's impressive. I know he would pee like you know like a girl dog, uh-huh. right? He'd pee like this and then he'd drink his pee, and we were like. And that's not normal. So, yeah, man, it was, it was, it was wild. But that was the type of dog that we were like, "Hey, there's something loose." That that's yeah. not normal. I've never seen a dog do that ever. I've seen dogs eat their own poop for all sorts of different reasons, but that was different. So, I, so we all knew collectively, like the owners knew the dog was special. Yeah. And so those are the conversations we have. Hey, this is this is on this end of the spectrum, and we have to work through certain things, yeah. and the expectations have to be realistic. Yeah. Right. We can't take a, um, you know, we can't, you know what I mean? You can't. Yeah. So for my, for my industry, it's, I tell everybody I, I used ethically, I still did the best job I could. Right. But back in the day I needed money. Remember I'm sleeping on a mm-hmm. freaking lazy boy. So I did everything in my power to make that dog who didn't give a crap about a duck or like swimming, or maybe it was gun shy. You know, I did everything to make it work and it worked. Now, like you said, we've got a waiting list and I'll tell people, I'll, we'll give it a month. In a month, I'm going to know and I will communicate with you whether your dog is going to be good or not. And after that, it'll be obedient. So you'll have a house pet that's obedient, but he's not going to cut it as a duck dog. And it, it's a very difficult, because I'm the guy that can make this dream come true for them. I'm the guy that's going to make their, their dream of having a duck dog happen because they can't. Mm-hmm. And so to call them and be like, you didn't do your homework on the pedigree and this dog does not care at all. And when I say, like, if it likes to go and get something, 
I probably can train it to be a duck dog. If it doesn't even look at a tennis ball and say, boy, this thing looks fun to go and get, or the, goes to the water and will not get in, I can't, I can, but I don't want to do it. You yes. know what I'm saying? Like I can, this is probably controversial to say, but I can make a dog do it. Yeah. But it's not fun for them. No. And it kind of enjoys, it kind of like depletes the purpose. It completely depletes the purpose. And it's my responsibility to call that person and tell them it's not going to happen. And so I would say on average two or three a year mm. will come and I've got to say, listen, here's the deal. It's going to take me way longer and it's not going to enjoy the process. Or you, you take it home and it's a house pet that's super obedient and we find you something else, you know, when the dog's a little bit older. And that's a sucky phone call because I let them down. Yeah. But I can't make a square peg fit through a round exactly. hole, man. So that's something you guys deal with a lot, right? Like that yeah. that conversation that Bob's talking about where I'll come in. And my I have I'm so lucky and grateful. I have such a good staff. Yeah, dude, you have to. Such a good staff. These guys are like you know, thickest thieves, just kind of good and bad. But <laughs> these guys are amazing. Yeah. And they do such a good job and they care so much. Mm-hmm. I'm think I think I'm the oldest person in the company you know and maybe katrina's a little older but i don't know but anyway these guys are a lot younger these guys are younger than me not a lot but when i come in i can feel it i'm like what's going on like is there a call we have to make and it stresses these guys out so much where they're like well maybe fido man he's just they said that he wasn't reactive and he can't even you know yeah so that's hard for you guys right to to have to make that because you're the guy, we're the guys, yeah. girls. Yeah. We're, we're the ones that can fix it. We're the company. Yeah, I think the standard that's placed on, on us, which isn't a, it's a, not a bad thing at all, but I think the standard that's placed on us when we have to tell people, hey, your dog's never going to like people coming into the house. And they're like, but we thought you could fix it. And we're like, we, we can't. Like, we can't make your dog like these. It's just the same thing. It's like, they can tolerate it, but we can't make them best friends. We can't make them want to chase a tennis ball or a duck or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I think, I think it's, it's hard because it's a lot of people don't get it right like i think especially because we are like you said like lifestyle like we're training pet dogs we're not training dogs that have a specific job that are going to go out every weekend and hunt dogs with their owners or whatever i think it's harder for people to wrap their heads i mean i'm sure you run into people that haven't done their research and just started first time duck dog and are excited and have no idea what the hell's going on but like for us it's like a lot of it's, I think a, a lot of people come in that way where they've like, they're just, they want something to work and want it to work fast and want results. And it's like, uh-huh. we can't do that. Like we can't, I, I wish. You're not we, a magician, man. Yeah. I wish we could. And you have to take that pressure but, off yourself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's definitely something I learned to, that gave me more peace is I'm not a magician. I can't do everything for everyone. And I have to be confident that if I tell you it's not going to work, that he's not going to go down the road and all of a sudden that person got it fixed. I've got to be sure that mm-hmm. it's not going to make it, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a burden that we bear for people so that they can have the best dog that they've ever wanted. Yeah. I make, we make dreams come true. And I think what Kyle was saying too, is I don't even think necessarily it's, it's the pressure that we have as a company because we've become the, We've worked hard at putting out content to help people. Sure. That's my, that's my jam. Yeah. So my staff should be able to do that too. That's why they work here. Right. But I think every dog trainer, right, there's too much unrealistic pressure. I've had those, like I've seen feedback, like we do feedback stuff for a members club and things like that. And there's been people that, I did this, like I do online consulting. Mm-hmm. So you have a problem with the dog or something, you call me, we do this online consulting thing, we mm-hmm. chat, we talk, whatever. And... um 
this this person left a review and 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 taking it with a grain of salt but what we're talking about is like tom basically said that there's nothing i can do and i'm like i would never look at somebody and talk to somebody that paid me money for me to help them and say yeah you're shit out of luck right it might sound like that to them but i would spend an hour trying to help them figure out like hey if your dog doesn't like other dogs like kyle was just saying there's nothing I can do. There's nothing you can do. But here's some realistic things that you can do to create neutrality in an environment. Exactly. And then they've got to put the work in. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's, that's the tough part, too, is like we were talking about earlier with athletic people and non-athletic people and you know owners that have that specific animal that's just a struggle. No matter how much consulting you do, if they don't, aren't able to do it or aren't as disciplined to be consistent, right? Consistency with dog training is probably number one yeah for sure and so if they're not consistent enough that dog's getting so much gray area that it's never going to really get better it may fix a little bit but people have to be realistic that this is a lot of work Mm -hmm. owning a dog whatever breed whatever purpose is a lot of work it's not kick it in the backyard and bring it in and go to work and put it in the backyard and it's perfect it's it's a lot of discipline to make it the dog you've always dreamed of yeah. Well, we get them. We have this vision of what this buddy's going to be like, and so you got to work at it. Sometimes you get lucky. Well, I was going to – I wanted to ask you, too. I know for us, um, private training, board and train-wise especially, because board and train, I mean, which you're obviously familiar with, you train the dogs and send them home. Yeah. I, what I tell people is we do the front loading of the stuff. You have to maintain it. You have to build that relationship with people. So, like, yeah. what is that – I know we – have it with everyone of like you have to build a relationship with your dog or this shit's not going to stick it's not going to work so i just what's that like for you so that's a really good the analogy i use for people is you're giving me this dog and we'll just talk about the duck dogs you're going to give me this dog for four months to a year or multiple years right if i am your builder of your home i'm gonna dig the dig the foundation build the foundation put up all the uh, two by fours for the structure. I'm going to put the roof on. I'm going to even furnish it for you. I'm going to paint the walls. I'm going to put couches in there. If you don't vacuum, if you don't dust, if you don't check the lights, if you, your house is going to fall apart. Yeah. So if I build you this beautiful dog that n- understands everything and is having fun doing it, and then you don't practice, you as the owner don't practice the things that we've taught you, and you don't practice with the dog so the dog stays sharp. It's going to fall apart in time and become sloppier and sloppier. And all of a sudden, this dog who was a dime piece at its job a year later doesn't come when it's called, doesn't, you know, drops the duck 50 feet away and starts eating rabbit poop. You know, it's like you didn't maintain the house. Mm-hmm. So we as dog trainers do the best we can to build a good foundation, build the home, and then these people have to listen, learn, and practice to maintain that home. Yeah. Another analogy that I like to tell people is it's like it's like getting into the best shape of your life, right? So say your dog isn't, you know, your dog's not in the best shape, meaning they're not listening, they're sure. whatever. And then I'm like the nutritionist professional. I look great. You're like, I want my dog. I want my dog to look like that. Okay, cool. But once you get into once you get into peak performance, right? There's a lot of conditioning that needs to happen to maintain so, it. Yeah. Say you get into the best shape of your life. You look good. You feel good. Because you ate right, right? You trained, you worked out, you exercised, you were mindful about what you stuck into your body. Mm-hmm. You feel good, you look good, you're like, this is what I wanted. And if you don't maintain that and you don't condition that, you can't go to your nutritionist and be like, man, yeah, I, I kind of... I got the muffin top again. Yeah, and I want to <laughs> go somewhere else because it didn't work. 
Yeah. And we, we, oh, yeah. those are huge red flags for us, right? Yeah. People come in, they're like, I tried, we take it with a grain of salt, right? So there's certain people that come in that say, I tried this type of training for a long time. And I'm like, well, that makes sense why that particular thing wouldn't work for that particular dog. But when people come in, they're like, we tried this and we tried him and we tried her and we tried them and we tried this and nothing's working. And that's the owner problem. And we're like, you know, again, depending on what, what they're doing and the training that they're doing. But those are also like... I probably referred those people to you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, and sometimes we, we try to do that too. We're like, you know, the place down the road, they, I think they have some openings, yeah. you know, next week. We don't have openings until th- six months from now. Yeah, two and a half sure. months. Yeah. yeah. No, I know. It, 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 it really takes commitment on the owners and understand that they're still an animal and they still need to be maintained and, and worked and exercised and provide discipline and structure mm-hmm. all the time. And if you don't, then it's just going to go back to the way it was. Yeah. We get him there and then you have to finish it. That's right. I yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of the most devastating things about the job too. And I'm sure you've had these dogs were right. absolute studs and you're like, holy shit, this is like a one in a oh. thousand dog. And then the owner just lets in like, we've had that with boarding trains. They come back for follow-ups. They email us mm-hmm. and it's like, this dog can do so much cool shit and you just let it go. Yeah. Well, that's why we do follow-ups for yeah. free forever. Oh, really? Yeah. We have lifetime follow-ups. Yeah. If, if at any point your dog slides out of what left here, come back in because we're going to teach you what you did wrong. Yeah. Because we've seen that. Yeah. Dog, they'll email and say a like, lot. Yeah, dog, you know, my dog did this, my dog did that. And um, they come in, they're like, Whoosh. dog's back to normal. Cause yeah, well, they just right. walk in. People, yeah. I'm sure you have it too. Not as much now because you do the out-of-state stuff, but I mean especially me and Zach who do the behavior stuff we talk about all the time. We have dogs come in that the owner's like the, the dog reacted maybe the, the first session we did distraction stuff, which is maybe two or three sessions in or whatever. Once yeah, yeah. we got a handle on the dog, they're like, they don't react here anymore, but they still react to the neighborhood. And it's like, well, do you guys go to people's homes if needed. Yeah. Yeah. I used to, when I was building the business and I had to do yeah. some of the things I didn't feel like doing, like I would go to people's homes and I feel like my assistant and I were talking about that. I may bring it back. It won't be me, but I may bring it back because we can have them beautiful at the farm. We can have them beautiful at tractor supply. We can have them beautiful doing all the obedience and behavioral stuff that we deal with. Mm -hmm. But then they still can't put that into play when the doorbell rings or the counter surfing. And, like, you have to be in that environment to show them, like, on their street to the dog they've been reactive to for the last two years, right, or the bicyclist that flies by, like, they have to hold the leash and do it in those things. And we, we practice. And I feel like that's the downfall of like our little obedience program in Central New York is like, we don't do it anymore. So mm. we may bring it back for 2023 because that's where they struggle. Yeah. I'll just, you know, talk about business for a second. Yeah. The reason why we don't mainly is because our trainers from the time they walk in until they're, they're done are booked. Yeah, no doubt. So that's hard for us is because we basically, if he has to go to an in-home, it's taking place of two privates that we can do here. That's how I am too. So that's so, why I stopped doing it. That's, it's like yeah. we're, I would, you know, train out in the mud all day, have to take a th- shower, drive 30 minutes, do the hour session that never lasts an hour because we're too nice to say I got to go. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you know, you've, you've taken four hours out of your day or three hours of your day for one situation. But I do find value in going to their home and saying, these are the common things that you brought up that we fixed here, but let me show you how you can handle it at home. And 
But people still have to do it, man. Well, I was yeah. gonna coming back to that. It. It's like some. I mean, when we used to do them, we would we go to the house. Dog wouldn't do shit. Yeah, it's like the person that's gonna make me follow the rules and set boundaries. And it's like it was all. It was a waste of their money. It was a waste of our time. It's like I would say ninety nine, not ninety 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 five percent of the the in homes I did. Dog didn't do anything. And so you, because you had control and you were rocking yeah. it. Yeah, no yeah. doubt. That's true, too. And Call then you leave and they're like, nah, I did it again. Yeah. 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 Call it like the strict uncle effect. Yeah. Right? I'm right. Funkle Bobby, though, so I'm the one that lets it rip. <laughs> right. Oh, you want ice cream? Let's go. Yeah. You could be both. Yeah. I yeah. think. You got like, to be both with dogs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I want to get back to development of puppy. All right. Yeah, let's do it, man. Rewind. All right, I get a lab. Right? Okay. Bob, I got this lab that I know is good for duck hunting. What, what, what's the process? So after I've done my research, I got, we talked about yep. the pedigree. I got that dog. Yep. You eight got we- the perfect specimen, eight weeks old. I have become more relaxed about this process. Back in the day, especially with Buck, I was dead strict on everything. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not allowed to play with other dogs because I want the, he could, but I was way more strict that he didn't build a relationship with the other house dog. And then I'm less value. Um, I didn't let him play with sticks because I didn't want him to go out in the swamp, not be able to find a duck and go, I bring sticks back to him all the time. He'll be happy. So he skips finding the duck, grabs a stick and comes back. I had, there's so many like old school ways that I, I tried to be perfect with Buck that now it's like, I don't care if they carry a stick. I still don't throw him a stick, but I don't, that it just, it's less stressful. So, so many people, I believe in my world and probably the protection sport world or the sheepdog world or the whatever, throw these puppies to the wolves and expect a 12-week-old puppy to have perfect sessions every session. So, my... Are you you getting... Like, if I called you and I said, Bob, I got this gun dog, are you taking it at eight weeks? uh, How does that work? I'll do a few a year like that. Um, But most of them, I'll coach you on the first four months. And when the dog's six months old, they come to me. How do you coach like curriculum? Uh, no, I just walk them through it and we're building online courses to kind of like, that's our 2023 goal is to zero to duck dog, build a course for them. So they, so they, and sorry for interrupting. I'm good. Ju- I'm ju- I want to walk through this. Yeah. So my viewers at home have an idea that if they're interested in a duck dog, sure. or if I'm interested in a duck dog, yeah. and I, I just think it's cool for us to learn. Like, yeah, dude. So, so if I have this puppy, am I going to you at eight weeks physically or? Okay. No, so I'll, I would have a conversation with that person and say, or they buy a puppy from me, here's what you're going to do. Crate train, it, super important for any dog. You're going to take it on every adventure you ever go on. Like I said, I want a really confident and bold, outgoing, nothing scares it, it's ready to take on the world kind of attitude because the positions I'm going to put it in as it develops are going to be stressful. And they need to feel super confident to attack those things. Not, mm, this seems too hard, not fun, I'm out. Mm. So take it everywhere with you. Um, I'm big on building retrieve drive. So what that puppy already has genetically, I'm going to continue to blossom it. So simple little, no distractions, simple little retrieves in the house. So I'm going to tease them with it. So they're amped up, toss it down a hallway. They're, if it's in a hallway, it's got nowhere to go but back to me. And I'm rewarding it with a treat. I'm just building this desire to go get something and bring it back to Uncle Bob. I want them swimming. So um, at a very young age, and sometimes if the weather's nice, I can get eight, you know, seven-week-old puppies, go down to my pond and get them swimming. And they have a blast. But I want positive experiences with everything. So no bad days. 
They can get corrections, no jumping, no barking, no whining, you know, don't be a little dink, don't jump on me. So they're getting, they're learning rules and boundaries and expectations that I have. But in essence, every day is a good day. So you're just saying, hey, I want this innate primal retrieval instinct in you to flourish and blossom. And that's the only thing I worry about from zero to six months. I treat train, you know, kennel or place. I treat train here and put a check cord on them and, you know, just kind of have them dragging it around and call them and treats. Um, I don't free shape very much and I don't clicker train um, at all. I just feel like I don't need to. And I don't, that's probably weird to say, but I don't care. I just don't. It's one more thing I got to hold in my hand. If I say, hey, good dog good deal so you're using markers you're just not using the tool that's right i'm the same way yeah i just lose that thing me too i I bought one one time and it worked for about four clicks and broke and so i said that was it i tried for four clicks so but i'm i'm rewarding that puppy on learning how to learn so i'm developing this skill set and i believe puppies they're when they were wolves or coyotes or foxes they don't learn they die so their brains develop at a super fast rate from zero to six months. And then that rate kind of starts to, you know, become average. To stay alive. To stay alive. So that zero to six months, they're a sponge. So they can learn great habits and they can learn bad habits. So I don't want to develop any bad habits. We never play tug of war with a duck dog or a pheasant dog or a mm. pointer, right? Because if I take that duck, I want them to give it to me. I don't want them to be like, oh, I love tug of war. So no tug of war. Um, so when you say, when you say you will do these things mm-hmm. like as a dog owner who's listening that wants this this is what they should be doing too okay so yeah. you're saying get in the water yep never Build retrieve drive some boundaries basic boundaries yep be a be a nice house pet go potty outside don't jump on me and 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 everything is a good day i love to retrieve i love to go get things and i love to bring them back okay so now you've built this you've built this super happy confident bold love to retrieve puppy and now we start, and, and you've done your treat training, so they have a basic understanding of the commands. Do they do it perfect? No. Are, I don't even care. Like, they can pull me on a leash until they're six months old. But they have an understanding of the commands. And then at six months old, they're bigger, stronger, and have more of an attention span. Oh, by the way, our sessions at these ages are like three minutes, right? They're super short. They're super fun. They're high energy. And then you're done. And then we do something a little bit later and a little bit later, and you're just piecemealing life into little sessions, but they're mm. short. Um, six months old, I start formal obedience. So, you know, choke chain, prong collar, slip lead, and I hold them to a higher standard of what, when I say it, you do it. Accountability. Accountability. And I become more strict, and I let less things slide, and so I don't have to ask the command it's, it's called a command for a reason, mm. right? It's not called a, I'm asking you to sit. I'm telling you to sit and we sit. So through repetition and sessions and sessions and sessions, that sit becomes quicker. It becomes more duration, more distractions are added. And that dog still has to sit. Once I get pretty solid understanding of all those commands on lead, I'm going to overlay everything I've taught with the e-collar. So that's how I teach e-collar. I, I teach the command. I show the command. I get a pretty damn good understanding on lead. Then I overlay each command separately with the collar. I don't pair sit and kennel and down and here in one session. If I'm working on the come or here command, that's what they're getting collar conditioned to. 
then I do sit, then I do heel, then I do kennel. So they come to me, they leave. And I don't know how you exactly collar condition. I've obviously watched some of your videos. I think we do things a little bit differently, but basically I look at the collar as a correction tool and a motivating tool. So compulsion training. So if I stimulate and tell you, if I say kennel and put a stim on it, that dog understands the faster I get to the dog bed and, and get on it, the faster that pressure's turned off. And what you find is once the dog is collar conditioned and has this understanding of what the collar means and it's not a, it's not a punishment tool, you didn't do kennel, so now you're getting it. It's mm. the tool that's saying, hurry up and get there faster and bam, yeah, buddy, good dog. And he's like, whoa, Jesus, I did it. And, and it becomes a motivator. It becomes compulsion. It becomes the faster I comply to sit, the faster I come when he's called, the faster I jump on the kennel, the faster I fetch a duck. All these things become super snappy, super stylish, and a positive. I can make corrections with it. Um, you went this way. I wanted you to go this way. Tweet, Nick, no, go this way. I'm going to break that down a little bit. Yeah. Because I want, I basically want my viewers and listeners to be able to have a really good understanding of how you do things sure yeah more? may i snag one more water of course is that, is that a possibility yeah i gotta, I gotta head into a session too okay do you want to describe even, yeah what do you want just normal water just a normal water thank you shout out to liquid death um so they're not sponsors by the way i just love their water <laughs> it's good it's it's it makes me feel fancy i'm just gonna throw it out there i just like they should be a sponsor i like canned water i feel like it's more refreshing I don't know why. Maybe it's a, like a placebo thing. But to get granule on yeah, some of that, the e-collar conditioning that you're doing mm -hmm. is essentially classical negative reinforcement. Thanks, Kyle. Have a good day. Have fun. Classical negative reinforcement, right? So you're, you're putting remote collar pressure on a dog, and you're using it as a gas pedal, okay? Okay. And then when they get to the kennel, you're taking it off. So yeah. you're taking something away, which is negative. So a lot of people, especially pet owners, think and don't understand that positive in the dog world, especially with the four quadrants, is just adding something to the equation. Mm -hmm. And negative is removing it. Mm -hmm. So when we... You hold just blew 80% of people's minds, by the way, including a little bit of mine. Like, remember we talked, like, I'm not a formal... Yeah. It's like I'm not formally went to canine academy and learned and got a certificate to be a dog trainer neither did i i learned how to work dogs by working dogs and so when i get guys on my podcast and they're like knee po po and the <laughs> quadrants i'm like yeah bro that sounds good did he sit <laughs> i know i know right. i'm the go, same way go, but go on no i'm the same way and i learned over time my one of my good friends force mickey is a specialist in in very traditional behavior and um he's just got chops forever mm -hmm. and he teach very he f teaches very traditionally and if you if you don't know the terminology you won't learn much right yeah i'm with you in a good way right he's he's just very articulate and um he's taught me a lot over the years and one of the things that we what we worked on because he's like man you're building yourself a pretty big platform i don't want you to get shit for saying the wrong thing which i do all the time because i'm not yeah same as these i'm I'm just like, I'll help you with your dog. Mm -hmm. And I've learned over time how to, that's what, that's what education is. It doesn't matter if you go to college or you self t teach yourself is you're, you're learning, you know, at t as time goes on. So yeah. negative reinforcement, yep. taking something away, removing it. Right. But it's re it's, it's re so positive reinforcement is to get, to encourage the dog to do the behavior in, in the future. 
So negative reinforcement. There's a gray area between negative reinforcement and positive punishment. You can look at it different ways. My definition between the two is how the animal or the dog perceives the pressure and how high it is. So if it's high and the dog's like, getting there, that's probably more like positive punishment. But if the dog feels it in a motivative way where like, I'm going to shut this off because I know that Bob's going to pay me either verbally or externally with food. That's right. Yes, good, boom. Or a retrieve. Yeah, cool. Yep. Same thing. So when you're when you're doing that, it's it's a for my viewers and listeners, it's a it's a form of negative reinforcement. So we're taking the remote collar away the moment the dog gets to the desired location, and in this case, it's the kennel. Sure. And so it acts like a gas pedal. Yep. The dog feels it, and they want to do things faster. That's right. You can supercharge things that way. And because it's, if you're using it at a level that's not punitive to the dog, mm-hmm. it can, it will never be stressful mm-hmm. in a way that is discouraging to the dog. Because in my opinion, adding some stress to the mix to get a dog to do something faster will make you better. If it doesn't overpower, right? We don't want to. Yeah, yeah, no, I, w- I was going to add to that. Yeah. I want a dog to, f- when their understanding is gaining, yeah. right? They're grasping what I'm asking. I'm going to increase the stimulation level so that if I need a higher stimulation level later in life to save them from running across a road or like a major infraction as an adult dog, like you're going to turn it up. That sucked. I'm not going to do it again. I don't want that to be their first time. So during my collar conditioning process, I finesse and I feather that collar stimulation to build a little bit of more, you know, you can overcome that stress. Mm. It's going to build more confidence in the end if they understand. I always go back to what I call the normal working level, where it's just a, conditioning, the least amount of pressure to get the desired response. So what levels, shout out to Dogtra, what, yeah. what levels do you, what collars do you typically use? And one question, sorry, I, I, forgot, I forgot to ask. When you start, when you say six months is when you start to get a little bit more serious with this dog. Yeah, yeah, six yeah. months is when you're like, hey man, it's time to take this seriously. At that age, they're, I would assume they're probably acting and feeling like teenagers, they're kind of like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're starting to feel their oats and and it, the treat is worth less because the pile of rabbit poop is way more tasty or the stick they're playing with or the other dogs are playing with. You know, you're... Females, girls. Yes. They're just <laughs> feeling their oats and they're more confident in the world. And so coming back to you or doing what you're asking of them, it's like, no, but I could be over here doing this. I could be over there doing that. And so at that age is when I start saying, mm, okay, time to get to business. They still have a lot of fun, but it's time to take it more seriously. Yeah. And you said you you do the uh, conditioning, so all that stuff. What's the time frame? Like, do you pretty much go, you got all your stuff down, taking it more serious. Then the So is the e-collar conditioning for your clients typically around that six month or? Yeah, so I'll get that dog at six months. I need to find out what they know. Okay. I need to teach them everything because the, the e-collar to me is not a teaching tool on things that they don't know. It's 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 fine-tuning the commands that they already know. Yeah. It's the, the polishing and the snappiness and then creating, teaching a dog how to learn, how to understand pressure, how to um, work through pressure, and how to become successful and turn that pressure off. And don't get pressure because you did it quickly and were really good at it, and so they become more successful and do it quicker and snappier. Mm-hmm. So um, after I've got the dog maybe two weeks, you know, I've got the leash and the treats and everything done. I'm going to overlay the leash with the collar, and then I proof it in certain ways to make sure that they understand what the collar means and that 
there's no bugs or holes in my training that could create confusion down the line. And once I do that, um, is there anything you want to no. digress on that? Okay. I'll let you know. I'll interrupt you. All right, cool. So once I get that intermixed, they're still getting retrieve sessions. So they're learning how to handle birds. They're learning how to handle bumpers. Uh, bumpers are a plastic training device that we can throw for the dogs and and then we throw ducks and pigeons and whatever else we, we have in. And these are dead, yeah, deceased uh, animals. Some aren't. Yeah. How do they? So you just basically flush them and say, hey, go chase that thing. Or, uh, so we'll have, we call them bird throwers. You know, they're, they're a person riding around on my four-wheeler. Got it. And they'll be out in the field and they'll throw the bumper or the bird for the dog out at a distance. And the dog has to go and get it and bring it back. Um, we have training devices that are remote controlled that can, are like a, a, a launcher or a slingshot that I can push a, bu- a dog to RR Deluxe. I can push that button and shoot this duck and it'll, you know, send the dog and go and get it. And you're building its, its skill level out in the field. So you're introducing decoys and birds and water and all the different environmental things that they could see on a hunt. At that six months, I'm starting to show that all to them too building upon what I've done the first four months I've owned them, right? So eight weeks to six months. So they've already had some of this stuff at that young age, but now I'm starting to make it harder, push the dog, challenge the dog, make things further, tougher to get to, tougher to dig out and cover, you know, whatever. After I've collar conditioned, I start a process called forced forced fetch. Have you ever heard about it? I did, uh, I don't know. I, I can't remember if I told you, but I did a a show called A Dog's Destiny that I originally created for Outdoor Channel. Oh, cool. And it was to help dog owners understand what their dog is supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. ultimately making sure that d- dogs are outletting. I did it with the Golden Retriever. It was the pilot. Cool. So I learned a little bit there. I was out with uh, Thunderstruck Kennels. Yeah. Nice yeah. people. Very good. Yeah. Todd great. and Benita. Yeah. Otterness. Super nice people. Great. Shout out. Love them. Yeah. So cool. They... I could go all day about them. They welcomed us to their home with open arms and cooked us home-cooked meals and gave us beers, and they were amazing. I find that the hunting community and the dog world are some amazing people so yeah. far. Hashtag unspoken bond. There you go. I love it. Yeah. So so now I'm going to force fetch, okay? Yeah. I learned a little bit. Of, the reason why I said that, I learned a little bit about it there, but that's it. Okay. So this is, along with the e-collar, this is one of the ways we teach dogs how to learn. So the presence of an uncomfortability motivates the dog to do something and then they do it because they have to. So uh, let me break that down a little bit more because force fetch, if, if I have a Labrador and it goes and gets a bumper or a duck and brings it back to me and drops it, that's not good. If that duck, if you're hunting and that duck is wounded, I don't want the dog dropping it 40 yards away from me and the duck get away. It's a com- the dog, in essence, when we started this whole deal, like in the 1800s, the dog was built to be a conservation tool. So the w- animals that we hunted and strived to get, we weren't just shooting and losing. The dog was designed to go and get them, find them, and bring them back to us so that we weren't just killing animals. Okay. Mm. So if we have a dog that continuously drops the bird, which is natural... To, to hang on to it forever is not natural. I did the job. I went and got it. I brought it back to you. It's dropped. Okay. Now this force fetch or like my buddy Ethan and Kat from Standing Stone, big YouTubers, 
Um, they call it the trained retrieve. It's a more PC way of saying force fetch. Force fetch is um, you can do ear pinch or toe hitch. Ear pinch, I'm going to fold the ear over the dog's collar, and I'm going to apply a little bit of thumb pressure on the ear so it's a little uncomfortable, just like a stimulation. To what collar? The e-collar? Yeah, or like a flat buckle collar. Okay. Pinch, it's uncomfortable. I'm going to insert the, I use a paint roller, insert the paint roller into the dog's mouth and love on them. Turn the ear pressure off, love on them. So uncomfortable, comfortable, it's mm-hmm. in its mouth, and I praise them. All of a sudden, they're going to go, hmm, if I open my mouth and I reach for this thing, the ear pressure comes off. Or you tie a rope around its toe and you tug gently on its toe. So uncomfortable toe, paint rollers mm. in its mouth, comfort. And he's loving on me. So they're learning how to learn, how to turn this pressure off, and how, you know how to handle some stressful situations that are weird and different. And boom, boom, this is what he's asking me to do. And so I'm showing them how to learn. Mm. Um, at the so then we'll once we get them like reaching for the bu- the bumper and picking up off the ground and all this stuff, I'm going to overlay collar stem and take away the ear pinch or toe hitch. And so now I can put something on the ground and say fetch, apply stimulation. Dog picks the bumper up and brings it back to me, sits nicely. I can take it. If he drops it, fetch, pressure on, pressure off. With that tool, you have a dog at this point. It's got a pretty damn good understanding of how to be successful, how to comply quickly with commands because it has to and it also wants to. So you're pairing that natural desire that I've built as a puppy, now applying rules behind it and saying this is the game, this is how we be successful at this game, and there's some consequences if you don't, but because it's such a smooth process... It's got some negative connotations as well, but it's a, such a smooth process for these dogs that you never have to do it again. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Could you, could you, I'm just curious. Yeah. Could you do like almost a form of free shaping where mm-hmm. you had the dog on a, on a leash or a tie back where they couldn't, or a table, right? Like a, you know, I'm talking about a table. Yeah. Yeah. We do it on a table. Yeah. So on. you do it on a table. And then you did low. So if the dog was taught negative reinforcement, which essentially would mean at its core to do a behavior when the pressure turns on. And again, it's at that level, it's not punitive. They're just like, okay, I'll do this. We know sit, we know kennel, we know down, et cetera. Could, because the dog has the expectation that the collar turns on, that they have to do something around verb, around behaviors they know, right? Could you put the dog on a table turn the same amount of pressure on to the dog and do your verbal like fetch or whatever you would do until they figured it out. And once they did, you would do the same thing without the ear pinch. Yeah. I'm just curious. I don't, some, I don't mind is I'm just, was curious. Some, some people do. Okay. Um, it's that portion of folks who've done that are more slim than the many. Um, I feel like the teaching process it's more monotonous. It's more time to do it the way I do it. But I think how I show a dog how to turn that pressure off is more fair than holding the button down and free shaping when they sit. Right. Right. There are definitely trainers that, you know, teach kind of that methodology of you feel this and when they do it, it comes off. Right. Um, so I think by having a step-by-step process that shows the dog, I mean, we even start with the hold command, right? So we just put the paint roller in their mouth and love on them. And when they stop, you know, chomping on it or like licking it and rolling it and trying to get it out of their mouth, 
once they stop that, then it's like, oh, this thing in my mouth is not a bad thing. I like it. Okay, now I'm going to apply a little ear pressure, put it in their mouth, and they're like, oh, that thing's back in my mouth. Life is good. And just reps. Mm -hmm. And five-minute sessions, eight-minute sessions of reps of just this is uncomfortable. It's in your mouth. Move on. Now apply collar to it, overlaid like I did with a leash, and heel or here or sit. Overlay collar with the ear pinch. And now I take the ear pinch away, and I'm just on the collar. And then, you know how, so we run blind retrieves. A, a, a blind retrieve is where a duck falls in a field or in a lake and the dog didn't see it. So how do we get them out there? We send them on a command. The word is back, B-A-C-K. Send them on back. They leave my side and they take a pretty straight line. And when they veer offline, I blow my whistle and I cast them with my arm to change direction and go in that direction. All of a sudden, boom, there's your duck. So force fetch, if I can apply pressure and get a dog to go get a bumper on the ground right there, I can now move that bumper a little further away, a little further away, a little further away, and create this enthusiasm. Mm. Even though you may not see it, you'll leave my side. Right. Then there's a process called T-pattern where we teach them how to sit on a whistle and change direction. So they now know how to leave my side. They know they'll be successful finding that thing that we've built a ton of drive around and that they love. And they go and get it. And now I've taught them not to drop it. So they bring it all the way back to me. And now I'm going to teach them to stop on a whistle and handle and change direction. How do you teach them to change directions? Like at like, you probably do it close. And then, so how do you do that? That's always interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the once we've got the dog done with force fetch and it knows I like it, but I also have to go and get that thing. Now I'm going to put those bumpers in short grass. So when they... You know, if I do this and everyone who's just listening, you can't see I'm lifting my right arm up and I'm moving it over to, to turn right and take a straight line to the right. So this is called a right over. So I'm going to put the dog sitting in front of me, facing me. I'm going to throw a few white bumpers in short grass. So he sees me throw them to the right, to the right. But he knows he's supposed to sit because I told him sit. So he's not allowed to go and get them. I get him to look at me again and I cast and say over. And he's like, heck yeah, I get to go and get this thing. He goes and gets it, brings it back. I throw it there again. So we call it establishing the pile. So I'm establishing the pile, showing you, hey, they're over there. Now I stop establishing the pile. I cast them over, and he's like, oh, there they are. Gets it. But it's super easy. It's They're like 10 feet away, 15 feet away, short white, or short grass, white bumpers. If he looks over there, he's going to see them. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't go, fetch, over. Oh, I know fetch. I got to go get that thing. So all of a sudden... I do the right over, then I do a left over, then I do a right back, then I do a left back, then I do, so I've only had one pile, wow, right overs, cool. then I do only leftovers, then I only do a back pile. And once I get them changing those directions without having to worry about everything, they're just worrying about one side, I'll take two piles, one to the right and one behind them. So now I'm casting you to the right. Now my next cast is going to be a turn to your left and go left back. So if I raise my left arm, you turn to the left and you dig, okay? So now I've got two. Once they're good at two, I do a back pile and a left over, and I do lefts and right backs. Now I put all three together. So I'm just building this understanding of where I'm putting my arm, there's going to be a reward there. There's no pressure involved. You're just teaching, mm-hmm. right? So I'm not forcing them to, you know, turn the pressure off and go get that bumper. I'm just teaching and showing and establishing the pile and making it a game. You go this way, you get a bumper. Hey, you go this way, you get a bumper. Hey, you go this way. And boom, 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 boom. After legit five sessions of that, where you can put them all together, 
we now back up and make it further away. And so now the pile, the back pile. So if you look at, if, if everyone can close their eyes unless you're driving, hmm. you're on a baseball diamond. A T pattern is a baseball diamond. So you've got home plate. That's where we stand with the dog. You've got first base. That's your right over. You've got your second base. That's your right back and left back. And you've got third base. That's your left over. Mm. The pitcher's mound is where we stop the dog on a whistle and tell them which one we want them to go and get. Right, right, right. So you're just using, you're bridging things together through your, 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 your fetch because the dog's like, fetch means I have to go stick this bumper in my mouth. Yep. So I got to find that. And then they go, oh, well, it's right here. And then they condition by showing them pictures of like. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. You're just showing them a picture, building confidence that it's over there. And I even have markers like a white, you can get white stakes at Tractor Supply to like put up, right. you know, fencing for chickens or something. I don't know. And um, so there's a white pole there that they see and there's white bumpers on short grass that they see. So if they make that life choice, I've been over here before and they now look out 30 yards away and see that white pole, I'm going to go to that white pole because there's bumpers there. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, yeah, you're building this chain, like people talk in training, you know, the block chain deal. So like you build one thing, then you add onto it and you add onto it and you add onto it. And all of a sudden after six, eight weeks of every day going out to the field and doing, practicing this, you're going to have a dog that will leave your side, stop at the pitcher's mound and go which way you raise your arm, right? left back and when they're out in the field mm -hmm. and you th say the birds to the right and they go left mm -hmm. they're not looking back at you you're just using the collar to say that's the wrong decision and then they make the decision you turn the collar off no a good question so the dog leaves my side yeah. is going in again they didn't see this bird fall so they they're just trusting you this is what i'm building with this t-pattern there's trust that there's something out there and you have to go and get it. You didn't see it fall. Send them out, stop them on the whistle. So back, dog leaves my side, straight line, tweet. Dog had learned through T pattern to spin, sit, and face me. So the, the whistle, is that a whistle? Yep. Okay. Yep, sorry. So it's a, a whistle. We blow the whistle, tweet. Dog turns and sits and faces me. I wanted to go. And this, it's stewed is so fine-tuned that if I put my arm, and again, if you're just listening, I'm sorry, but if I put my arm here, that's a straight back. Any variation of where my arm goes, that's the angle I want them to take. Wow. It's ridiculous how precise I can make a dog. Anybody in my industry, really. But you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. To, to give them a 45 and they take a 45 or give them a 28 and they take a 28, it's like these dogs are so fine-tuned through reps and confidence and building so let's say I give an angle right back and that dog turns and spins to the right, but then fades to the left because there's something over there. He thinks that's where it's going to be. Or maybe terrain features push that dog that way, or the wind is blowing stiff and it fades with the wind. Tweet, no, cast again. Okay. So I'm not putting pressure on that, but I'm not going to, he makes a bad decision and I put pressure and, oh, he meant this way and he just veers that way. It's a... You stop them again. We'll, do you guys talk about attrition at all? Mm -mm. So attrition is doing the same thing over and over and over again until you can't do it wrong. Okay? Mm. So attrition is a form of a correction, but without collar or without a verbal no. So you're going to, well, I guess I would say no, but. So tweet, 
no here. I'm going to bring them in to where they made the mistake. I'm going to try again. They do the wrong cast, tweet, no here, bring them to where they made the mistake, cast again. And then they do it. All of a sudden, now they're making less mistakes without pressure or stress in the field. They're just learning that I'm getting brought back to where I screwed up. Let me focus in. I go that way. I, got, I, I must not have gone the right way. He's bringing me back to where I made a mistake. I'm going to focus even more, and they go. The other reason we do that is we take away some momentum. If they want to go to the left because there's something really enticing over there, and I stop them and tell them to go to the right, they are building momentum the longer I let them go towards where they want. So by calling them back a little bit to me, I'm taking some momentum and saying, hey, dude, listen to where I'm telling you to go. It's over here. Then they do it, and then there's the bumper there. And then all of a sudden, it starts clicking like, Bob might know what he's telling me. Mm. I'm, if I go where he points, I'm going to get rewarded with the bumper, the thing I love the most. And so, you know, and this is not a two-week course. This is a, you know, if someone tells me they want a dog to run blind retrieves, you need to give me a year to a year and a half. Wow. From six months old to a year and a half, I can get a dog running half-ass blinds. Once they're at that year and a half, man, the confidence starts coming. You're doing, you're, we can get dogs to sit in the water, turn and look at me, tread water, and go where I tell them to go. You know, I can't help but think as you're talking about all this, again, from a pet, pet's perspective, mm-hmm. is not only are you helping your dog gain their destiny of what they're yeah. supposed to be doing and yeah. it probably feels great for them oh yeah things are clicking and i've seen working dogs in the field do this and they love it oh yeah we're not making them do any of this unless they wouldn't be out in the field with you right and you're also doing this together and not and again like i'll say it again it's it's so crazy how you know what you do there's so many dogs out there that are probably so envious because you guys are People who have pet owner, like I, I have a hybrid, like Lakota, my dog that you saw when you came in, she's, yeah. she can come to work with me and she works a little bit, but I'm not doing like Dutch shepherd stuff. Like she would love to do herding and PSA and sure. ring sports. I'm not doing, I used to a little bit, but she still gets to work regardless. She's a working breed. But what you're doing is, is you're not only getting your dogs to do what they're born to do. You're doing it with them. Yeah. And so typically when people get a dog, they're like, you're my pet. I had a pet growing up. The kids love you. It's cool to have around. Scratch their head when you come home for dinner. You brush your teeth and go to bed. Yep. But what you're doing is is two things. Is you're like, hey, man, you know that itch that you have? I'm going to show you what that is. That's right. And I'm going to bring it out of you. And you're going to love it. But mm-hmm. then also, me being your owner, I'm your natural best friend. Yep. And we're going to do it together. And I think just as you're saying all this, it's just like the dogs. Because here's what I'm thinking. Is the dogs out and they're like, yeah, what do I do? And you're like, that. Oh, okay, boom. And yeah. then, you know, oh, yeah, and they get up, and, ass they're, and they're like, stop them again, which way, which way? Oh, yeah, and that's, and, and, and what you were saying about the bumper from a behavioral standpoint is it develops so much trust and it develops so much confidence and your relationship is just at a whole new level. Yeah. Because they're out and their their adrenaline is, and, you know, the grandfather and the mom and dad are coming through the genetics and they're pumping, and they're looking and they're smelling and, all these things are happening and some dogs are jumping up and they're looking and it's, it's going crazy haywire. Dude. So how the way I kind of equate it to people, there, there's one way I'm going to say it and then I'm going to break it down a little bit more. We, we like our jobs. We love our jobs, but there are days we probably don't. Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. 
maybe four days a week we feel like, hey, we're pissing vinegar, let's go to work, baby. And then there's one day we're like, man, I kind of could take a take a rest day here and spend some family time or just, you know, decompress. Every single day that these dogs go to work with me is the best day of their life. Wow. Yeah. That's how they look at it. This, you know, you don't open. So I have a big dog trailer. You open that crate door and they're like, that tail's just, it's my turn. I'm ready, baby. Let's go. Every day they go to work and it's the best day of their life. It should be. I mean, sometimes they have bad days or whatever. Maybe they got more corrections than they felt like getting. I don't know. But the point is, every day is like the greatest day because they get to go and do and fulfill what they were bred to do, and then they get good at it, and it becomes even more even more better. That's not the right word, but, you know, it's just great. Like, they're just loving it. I don't like to say my dog has a job because I think most people who listen to the podcast are going to their office and are like, I don't like my job. Mm. My dog doesn't have a job. My dog's a team sport dog. We're a sport. When I played college sports, I worked out every day. I went for extra runs. I lived to be a, a member of that team and to be good at my job, at my sport, and wanted to be the best I could be at it. If I can have that dog have that feeling that this is a sport, this is fun, every day is I get to do what I love, that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm envious of my dogs because every day – they get to go and do it. Yeah, man. I, you know, as you're saying that too, I'm thinking about these things as I think dogs in general have this two-sided thing in life where they're like, Hey man, I love people. You're my best friend, mom and dad or whatever. You're my family. I love you guys. Mm-hmm. But I think bigger than that is, is providing them the, the, the scratched that itch. Yeah. And you do both. Yeah. And so again, like, yeah, all that's just great, man. I, I, yeah. I'm really like... Taking a dog from nothing except genetics mm-hmm. and getting it to the end goal of being able to throw a duck anywhere you... I mean, 400 yards away, four football fields away, they see this little thing flying through the air, and there's three ponds in between me and that duck, and they run 110 miles an hour, hit that water like a ton of bricks, swim all the way across the pond, get out, run 110 miles an hour, hit the next pond. And you see this dog see this little baby thing fly in the air, and they know that if I go as fast as I can, I get the thing that I love the most. Yeah. And they're willing to do anything and go anywhere to go and get it. That's what you want. And so if you've got a husky, figure out some sort of strap system and strap that sucker to a, um, you know, a... Like a harness. A kid's, a kid's stroller or something. And, a, you know, let it pull the stroller on your walk. And, like, that dog would probably feel so fulfilled after that walk versus, you know, just going on a hike in the woods because it was bred to pull. It was bred to, yeah. to travel. And, and man, like, I even think of, like, Jack Russell Terriers. Like, oh, if yeah. I had a Jack Russell Terrier, I'd be like, who's got mice in their house? Let's go. We're going to make this dog feel fulfilled. Yeah purpose i think yeah Live again, with purpose again i think if more of the pet industry people understood what i'm trying to understand because i'm not saying i understand it because i don't that's why you're here right i do now and that's cool but so six months okay so you say like to what you were just saying blind retrievals mm-hmm. learning how to go left and right mm-hmm. that's the year, year and a half mark it takes to develop yeah. Like a full dog. And you don't, I don't understand. So you, these, your clients are 
you have these dogs for that long? Yeah. Okay. So this is a major sacrifice for people to be gone from their dog that long. And a lot of them are great. They come once a month. They come every other week. And they'll spend an hour or they'll take a day off of work and legit spend every minute of my day watching other dogs work, working their dog, learning, processing what the dog's skill level is now and me tweaking their skill level so they can handle the dog at a high level when it goes home, you know, maintain the house. Um, But, dude, I have some dogs that I've had their dog more than their owner has. They'll have them for three months a year. And it's kind of sad, actually. I've thought about that a lot lately because I have one dog in particular that from six months old, he's only lived with his owners in the wintertime and goes and hunts and like they come to every hunt test that I'm running them in. Like they're in it to win it with me. Mm. And I'm like, he's the horse. I'm the jockey. They believe in me, but I'm going to look back when that dog's eight and will have still had that dog more than they have. You know, and that's kind of a sad thing. So I think that there's a happy medium between people sending their dog to me to do this stuff and me teaching people on my online courses or Patreon or the podcast so that they can do it and and have the dog longer. Do you feel like those dogs that you're talking about, to me it seems, and I've seen working dogs, they don't give a shit about anything. They're like, like Lakota, again, my dog, she doesn't, she doesn't really like other dogs. She tolerates them. She's not going to go after him necessarily unless, yeah. you know, but she, she's funny. This morning I went into, she goes into the office. I apparently, I didn't shut my door all the way. So we're in here and we're kind of getting ready for the podcast. And all of a sudden, Zach, one of my trainers goes, oh, hey, Lakota. I'm like, Lakota, what the, she's in my office. She's in here. And she comes in and there's probably three or four people in here. And we have some bite wedges on the, the thing up there, the, the coat rack. And she's looking at them, looking at them, looking at them. Mm-hmm. She doesn't care. That's the thing about her. She doesn't, she cares about me, but because she's a working dog, yeah. as long as you can play that game with her, she's fulfilled and happy, mm-hmm. which there's benefits to that because I had two pets before that. I had St. Bernard Thompson and Lola, the dog I talked about. They were pets. They found happiness day in and day out by being around me. Yeah. Right. And Going then on adventures with you, being, yeah. being your bud. Being your bud. Right. The, some of their, most of their happiness, I would say. Their fair share of happiness came from human affection because they were pets. They didn't have this insane, innate, like, (laughs) when's the next ball going to be thrown? Like a lot of your dogs, just on a different spectrum, right? Yeah, yeah. So do you think that that dog that you have that sees his owners, and I would say at this point the person who bought the dog, maybe not even its owners, right? Or, or, or because I've seen other people in this industry too have part ownership. You see this a lot in the um, in the show ring. Yeah, yeah, co-owners. Right? right, you have co-owners where it's like, do you feel like that dog cares? Is my question like about them? Yeah, like do, are they just as happy with you or or, or with uh, anybody else? All right, that's a good question. I think that's the beauty of a Labrador. That, like that dog again goes home for three months. This is he'll be our, my example of this when they show up. And he hears their voice and he's on my trailer. He never makes a peep. He'll start barking. Mm. Let me out. Let me see him. I mean, it's, it, it is a, they still have an unbelievable relationship with that dog. And he's only there three to four months a year. And, mm-hmm. and they come and see him and he gets to run them in tests and whatever. But that dog still loves them unconditionally. He loves me too, though. But, but it's like he don't whine when I show up in the morning. Mm. He's ready to go to work. I'm the work facilitator. I'm the... I'm the guy that's providing the duck that he loves. So he loves me for and works for me for 
the ability to do his job. Like she's looking at those bite things, like mm -hmm. which one of you is going to play with me? Mm -hmm. I'm kind of that for him. And I, but I don't know. I mean, he's, if I, he was sitting here, he'd have his head on my lap. He wouldn't be anywhere else. Right. Um, so he has affection, but he didn't forget his owners. He didn't love them less by any means. Interesting. It's a wild thing to see a dog. Yeah. They just roll up in their truck and say, hey, Bob, and you just hear him go, huh, oh, yeah, hoo, hoo. yeah. Like, dang, man, they've been here 30 seconds. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, it's really wild, man. I think that's what's special about a lab, and I'm, there's a plenty of other breeds that are like that. But he does have that ability to be a pet yeah. as well. Have that affection. Yeah. Or like Lakota, if I'm like, we just did a tour, uh, we were gone for a month and we came home and she was excited. She's like, Hey, you're here. Yeah. Where's the chuck it? Yeah. You know what I mean? She just, and that's the thing. Like I'm just desperate to educate people on is yeah. the different calibers of dogs. Absolutely. She loves me. She probably love you if you threw a ball with her. Right. You know, she just doesn't care who you are. She's like, let's do this. But, you know, when I, when I get home, so when I left, um, when my other pets were alive, when I traveled, it was hard on them. Yeah, stressful. Because they're pets. And yeah. again, like, they're my buddies. Like, I, I grew up with them. Mm -hmm. I grew up with Lakota, too. But, like, her, it's, her she ticker. She picks different, yeah. Yeah, her ticker's different, man. She's, yeah. she's, a different, she's a different type of companion. I think that there's different personalities within the Labradors and Chessies and Goldens and all that stuff, too, where, like, some are just going to be more apt to lay in that corner of the couch with you versus the ones who are, mm -hmm. are putting their head on your lap. Or the one who's, you know, my dog, Quinn, she's bad to the bone. She's like your Lakota. Like, if she's playing with a ball and we put it up high, she will sit there and stare at that sucker for a neurotic amount of time. It's just like, I want to retrieve. This is what I'm here for. She's still lovable, put, you know, all that. But it's if there is a ball involved or a bumper or anything, it's, no. Nah, yeah. That's all it Just is. Just levels to it. Yeah. yeah. So after, okay, after the year and a half, mm -hmm. dog is retrieving great, or yeah, the dog is retrieving ducks and things. Yeah. Is there variations of birds? Because I don't understand. What's the difference between, and there may not be, upland hunting and bird hunting? Like duck hunting. So, yeah, there's two, two different kinds, right? So... Um, I can break it down breed wise a little bit. So upland hunting, typically people are going to have pointing breeds, German short hairs, English setters, drottars. Um, those dogs are going out in a field pointing where a bird scent is. You as the hunter walk up, flush the bird, shoot it. They'll go and get it and bring it back to you. What's a drothar? Uh, you know what a German wire haired pointer is? Yeah. That's what they look like. They're like the German wire haired pointer is like the Americanized drothar. So it's a German breed, scruffy, goatee, scruffy hair. Are they like tan or are they like dark brown? Um, they would range kind of like a short hair. Some short hairs are all liver or black and white mm. with spots or liver and white with spots. Drothars can be liver and white with, you know, spots. They call it roan. And, uh, and same with black. So blacker liver. Um, cool dog. They're intense, though. Like the German people, they're yeah. hardcore, bro. Their their hunt testy stuff is yeah pretty savage. I would say same thing with anything from Australia. I say the same thing. They're savage. I'm like, if it comes from Australia, it's gonna be a a, a tough dog for you to own and not work. Yeah, yeah, those typically. dogs need a job. Um, so the, that would be for upland. Now you can have a Labrador be an upland dog, but he's not pointing. He's flushing. 
so we can walk through a field and he's using his nose and running out in front of me within gun range and he's smelling for a bird and rushes in and flushes the bird himself. I shoot it, he goes and brings it back to me. So that style of hunting is way more freedom for the dog. They get to run. They just have to stay within range, but they get to run. You be super independent using their nose. Bird goes up, they go and get it and bring it back to me. Waterfowl hunting, duck hunting, or goose hunting is way more strict. You have to sit still next to me. Don't move. Don't be running around. Sit still. We're all sitting in a boat or a blind or in the wood line or wherever we're hunting. Sit still next to me. Birds come into the decoys. We shoot. Bird falls. Dog waits to be sent and then goes. So they have to be steady. They have to be quiet. They've got to be able to contain themselves in the emotion of excitement of mm. a duck being shot. Um, Which I'm sure is... Oh, dude, it kills some of them. <laughs> Rattling the hole. Oh, dude, they're they're shaking. Their they're breathing changes. My dog, old dog Memphis, her teeth would chatter like she was cold. Like, So you don't teach that. That's what I mean. It's like, in it. That's what I'm saying. That's when you know, like... Yeah. It would be a shame to put that dog in a backyard. Yeah, and do nothing with it. Never throw it a ball. Yeah, she wouldn't be fulfilled. So uh, a duck dog is a lot more... Um, self-control of themselves self-discipline to sit still and be focused on the task at hand that we're doing and then have that self-control when it is go time to wait till i send them because again folks like we're shooting guns i can't have like us blowing a duck call ducks flying around and the dog run out in in harm's way so that dog has to be nice and steady and obedient and calm while we're using live ammunition and then when I say it's time, then they go do their thing. And then it's like, whoops, you slingshot them out there. And man, let it rip. That's cool. Yeah, dude. It's such a fun, fun experience. I have a young dog. Her name's Prairie. She's two. And Memphis, Memphis is my hunting companion. Mm-hmm. She's eight now, getting arthritis. And so on the hard hunts, I've started hunting Prairie. And she's been trained. But there's a difference between hunting and, and training. I set up the scenarios in training. I teach the dog in training. Um, But the real deal, the adrenaline that happens on a real hunt is, is so different than training. And it was wild to watch her on day one where she's like, what are we doing sitting here? I don't know what we're doing. Like she didn't know, had no freaking clue. We shot a duck. It was right there. It's completely different, right? Completely different. Right there. And I say her name and she's like, what? it's right there bud i trained you for two years to go get that and she just looked at me finally i got her to go get it and then it clicked boom everything that i built in that dog for the last two years it took one example to say like this is this is just like training it's just the real thing now and now she's sitting there shaking and scanning the sky and every seagull she think is is coming for us and like it's so intense after one duck yeah so they get, they get the itch like humans do. Oh, yeah. There's memes out there and stuff or like little reels where someone in the, the blind will click the safety off on a gun. And it just, all they hear is, and that dog will wake up out of a sound sleep and be like, let's go. Oh, that's it, sick. Or like, we'll say like, all right, guys, get ready, get ready. Yeah. And when you say that, Memphis is going like absolutely, 
get ready means it's about to go down, you know, like just they pick up on those cues, right? It's just. Yeah. Everything that they've ever loved is about to happen. Yep. And they're going to go get it. It's amazing. That leads me to a couple questions we got from Instagram. Yeah. Hit them up. So one of the questions we got is how to, how do you guys condition guns with dogs and, and what's the rate? And this is my question. What's the rate of dogs who kind of flop out of the program? Because, because of guns? Because of the gun scare. Zero. Okay. Okay. No dog comes out of the womb gun shy. You, your dogs or just you No think? dogs come out of the womb gun shy. Humans make them gun shy. So a gun shy dog is a dog that is scared of gunfire. And then they quickly, they, they can associate the actual firearm as the perpetrator of what scares the crap out of them. Um, dogs that are scared of fireworks not necessarily gun shy, um, but loud noises will rattle them. And so you can make a dog, you make a dog gun shy by not following a process. And again, we use retrieve drive. That's why from zero to six months, I'm building retrieve drive. Nothing can scare them because they love that thing so much, no matter what. Focus. They want that thing. So basically how I introduce gunfire to a dog, how I condition it, is I have a low caliber 22 blank pistol, and I have an assistant. And actually, I typically will do it now so that I'm watching the dog at 150 yards away, and maybe I don't pull the trigger, or maybe I do. But long story short, if I'm teaching a dog, I've built retrieve drive, I've got tons, and I'm not doing it three months or four months. I'm waiting till they're a little bit older, and nothing can stop them. I stand the gun 150 yards away and build the desire. Hey, 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 hey. They're chasing it. They're like, we're about to go get a retrieve. Throw the bumper. While the dog is running to the bumper, so they're making noise through the grass, they're breathing heavy, and they're hyper-focused on that bumper. Pink. Off goes the 22 150 yards away. Dog, I'm, I'm watching the dog. He didn't pay attention to that sound at all. He went for the bumper. I move closer. So now I'm 125 yards away. Same thing. Tease the dog. Throw the bumper. Dog's halfway to it. Tink. A little bit louder. Dog stays focused on that bumper. Goes and gets it. Brings it back. Boom. Move up to, you know, and I'll progress quicker. But like all the way until I can get to that 22 pistol where I'm like 10, 15 feet away. Throw the bumper. Dog's chasing it. That loud noise is closer. Dog doesn't hesitate. It just is now thinking and pairing that sound means the thing I love the most. It becomes a mm. huge positive. So gunfire means I love what I'm doing. I'm not scared of it because I get to go do that. Um, once I've done the small caliber gun that's not super intimidating sound-wise, I'll bump up to a shotgun, and I start all the way over, far away, move closer until the dog doesn't bat an eye. I mean, it's just pairing the thought of that sound equals the thing it loves the most. If the dog balks, if the dog is running after it and it stops and doesn't complete the retrieve because that noise got too loud for it, stop what you're doing, get further away from the gunfire, build the dog back up. Hey, 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 throw it. He gets a freebie. He gets a freebie. All of a sudden he's back in the zone doing his thing and I'm further away from the gunfire, do it again. And if he doesn't balk, stay at that distance for a little while. So after like three to five sessions, you can shoot a 12-gauge shotgun super loud next to the dog while the dog continues doing his job. 
if people don't do it right. A lot of people, like it's, a, it's an old wives' tale, right? Like, my, um, let me see if the dog is gun shy. Let me see if this puppy's going to be afraid of loud noises. Mm-hmm. And you bang around off right next to this puppy and you scare the crap out of it because it has no... It's out of context. It's totally out of context. It has nothing. Now right. it's gun shy. And now I've got, I've fixed a few dogs that were gun shy, but there are, it's tough. Do you ever worry about like their hearing and cause uh, like uh, when you're in blinds and stuff, it's tight, right? Yeah. So the general rule of thumb is the dog needs to be next to me or just slightly behind me. So the muzzle blast of the shotgun is pointed further out and the concussion of it is that way. If you have it, and that's also why it's important to have them steady. If they start scooting out in front of you and that blast, it's like tenfold the decibels just here instead of here. Mm. Um, but that is one of those things where they get to do their, it's like an NFL football player, man. Like at the end of their career, they may be 35 and they're wore out. Their knees are shot, their back is shot, their shoulders are shot. Uh, a dog that hunts a ton probably is going to have hearing loss at a younger age than a dog who's never had that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we take it into consideration where we put the dog on hunts, how we train. And when I train dogs, I almost never shoot guns. We've got blanks that are more of a pop, so it simulates it, but it's not as loud. So we protect their hearing that way. And I don't even do that at boatload because I want to elongate this dog's career mm-hmm. as long as possible. So. Yeah. Yeah. When when I was over at Thunderstruck, they used the cannon. Yeah. They, yeah. Yeah. I got one of those. Those are cool. Yeah. So it's basically compressed air. Um, it's like an old potato launcher kind of. It's exactly what it is, dude. It's a potato launcher. Yeah. And you uh, fill it up with a little bit of gas, push a button that ignites it, and it goes boom. Yeah. And so we'll use it out in the field. So at those distances, you're not going to hurt their hearing at all. It's right. right next to you that you could have a problem. Yeah. And that's probably good for. Just if you're like, they were just doing it around their house instead of shooting guns, they're just popping off. Yeah. And so I would say if I could just analogy to gunfire, like I told you, you dogs don't come out of the womb gun shy. We make them gun shy. Think about that in the pet world. A a brand new puppy isn't scared of thunder. Mm. Like if they show signs of thunder, being nervous of thunder, if I can channel it and get it to think about something else and use its natural desires in that environment with the thunder going on, now he's associating positive vibes with that instance instead of coddling it and petting it and, in essence, praising it for being that way. Yeah, and I've also seen some natural... Um... I, I have two for the thunder deal. I'm just saying yeah, they don't no, come out all jacked up. Yeah, it's well, how we handle them when, when those things happen. I, I, I just think that's in general. Yeah. Like, regardless, you know, like, I, I think that's why a lot of dogs get really reactive towards other dogs in the first place. Sure. Or let's, let's for instance, dogs swimming. Yeah. Whether it's a pet dog or a, a Labrador duck dog. If they're scared of swimming, or, or like, I don't toss them in a pool and right. see if they'll swim, I encourage them to join me. I go to a lake that's, l- like, gentle entry into the pond. I'm not going to the ocean where waves are crashing. Mm. That'll scare the crap out of anybody. So I'm I'm having really positive environments to build them up to where if I do go to an ocean, he's going in. But I've started as a puppy doing all the easy stuff. He's not going in a river and getting swept downstream at 8, 12, 15 weeks old. Right? 
It's like that with people development too. That's right. Behaviorally. Like my son, he's six months old now. He's already reading. And he, <laughs> he's already driving a car. He, so he, um, my wife and I, have, my wife mainly has done really good at like the structure. She just did a lot of research and I'm sure. kind of like, let's just, let's just, let you know. Let it be a puppy. Yeah, let it be a puppy for a little bit. But she's just done a really good job at like what uh, good exposure is. And so we did a lot of baths when he was young. So, you know, put we made sure that some water got over his face mm -hmm. and he learned how to handle that. Yeah. You know, not like, you know, torturing <laughs> him, but some water got over his face and he'd, he'd kind of like flinch and go, Oh, whoa, whoa, that's kind of scary. And then over time. So now he can take a full glass, uh, a pitcher of water and he just closes his eyes and waits. That's hilarious. And he wakes back and he's great. He loves it. He's in this bath. And then we also teach him like, he's got this little, um, He's got this little thing that he kind of sits in to hold him up. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes we'll take him out and we'll let him float in the warm water. Nice. We started him off. We have a pool. So we started him off in swimming lessons in an indoor place here. Yeah. And so he, he was the youngest kid in the whole pool. And he got there. And because we did all the things that we did, he was just lounging. Yeah. Did not care. The water didn't phase him. The splashing didn't phase him. They had this thing where they took this picture. of It looked like a shark. It was fun. And he poured over and they were like, man... And the lifeguard, she said, how, how old is he? I said, six months. She goes, he's doing so good. He, he doesn't care at all. I go, it's the same thing. It's You introduced it and, yeah. and it became a normal and, and now he's a kick-ass swimmer. Yeah, couldn't, he does, it doesn't phase him. Exactly. But yeah, it's the same thing. Um, okay, next question from the people of Instagram is, and, th and this is just like a, can you teach an older dog to hunt? So not elderly, but six-year-old, five-year-old dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It goes back to the dog has a purpose, right? And so I would encourage anybody, if if this conversation strikes them and they've got a Brittany or a, a Labrador or a Golden Retriever and they think this will be fun, you can 100% train that dog. I would just say that the bad habits that they, like maybe you played a ton of tug of war. <laughs> right. And now like after six years of life of tug of war, you try and take a duck from him, he's going to tug it back. So a lot of bad habits are going to be a little bit tougher to fix, but I believe, I'm sure you'd agree, old dogs can learn new tricks and they have fun and you're using their natural desires and you build it and you shape it and all of a sudden they're doing more, 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 more and you're having fun. Just go have fun. Mm -hmm. I don't care how old. Yeah, I would agree. Do you fix your working dogs? I do not. Um, I do not because I breed, but I am of the school of thought that these dogs have hormones that help them develop. So if you were to take a nine-year-old boy and castrate him, he is not going to develop muscular, maybe even height, like joints, all these things. And even his brain chemistry is going to be different because he doesn't have testosterone flowing through him. Mm -hmm. He's not going to develop strong, big muscles at all. And I would care to say if I saw a Labrador stand in front of me, two of them, one's neutered and one's not, I could probably tell you as, you know, without looking at them, mm. that one's muscle definition is different and that it, it has developed a little bit differently. So if you want to neuter your dog and you have a higher purpose for them athletically, I believe you need to wait until that dog is fully grown up, knees, ligaments, muscles, brain, everything is formed, and then you can take that testosterone 
um, away. Yeah. But they've developed. Yeah. And for those of you listening and watching, uh, I did a podcast with a veterinarian. Actually, I met her out in Minnesota when we did. Uh, so she she helps breed the Otterness's dogs. Yeah. The retrievers. And I had her on my podcast because she's just super cool vet. Yeah. She gets it. Yeah. You know, she sees a lot of behavioral problems, you know, happen from different things. And she breeds. I shouldn't say that. She helps with the artificial insemination. Yeah, yeah. It's a really cool process. We were there for the whole thing. It was crazy. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah. So she was just saying that um, basically there's a lot of different ideas out there, right? And science argues with each other all the time. We all know that. Yeah, it's politics. Right. It's... it's Bob Barker, spaying new to your pets, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and that just like anything, right? Like, there, like there's going to be evidence over here that says this, and there's going to be evidence over here that says this, right? Sure. So, yeah. and they're, and they're going to change yeah. yearly. Sometimes quarterly, yeah, right. And so that's what she was saying. And in the vet world, it's changing, and there's not a lot of research, and there's not a lot of consistency. It's hard to say what's good and what's bad. Mm-hmm. But one thing that she knows is, she's like, you'll ask ten different vets, you'll get ten different answers. That's right. So she was saying that one thing we do know for sure is it takes away all the testosterone. Yeah, yeah. So. They don't have their their organs that make them develop. And I want to have a healthy, well built animal that can be athletic for a long period of time yeah so yeah i mean and i've talked about this before my saint bernard thompson again like i talk about him a lot because he's he was a dog that i lived with for 12 years and he lived till 12 and as a saint bernard that's crazy that's uh, yeah orthopedically he was amazing like he 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 ended up passing away for just like multiple reasons but orthopedically he he was so healthy and that was always like you know going to be i was dogs are going to die right they never live long enough but what i never wanted to do is have to put one of my dogs down because they were unhealthy yeah and for him like that would be absolutely devastating to know that my dog was all here but couldn't get up yeah you know he ended up getting bloat and pneumonia and all these he didn't feel great right when he passed away but it would have been devastating to have to put down a healthy dog mentally because his rear end wouldn't work. Yeah. Two things I think really contributed to that because this dog was not a gold standard bred dog. Mm-hmm. I got him on a limb because uh, I because w- I went the first route. I think I told you this when we talked on your your podcast is I paid three thousand dollars for this Saint Bernard that was you know fifty years of genetics and he passed away at six months right. and apparently it was the only dog of hers that's ever died that young, apparently. Yeah, of course. So I ended up getting this other St. Bernard and, you know, he was 500 bucks out of a grooming shop. Right. And he, my point is, is two things I think personally helped him live a a healthy life and happy life, raw fed diet and, uh, being intact. Yeah. Because I remember I brought him in to, uh, to, uh, the vet, uh, about a year before he had passed just to do a checkup. And the vet, I remember, said to me, you know, his teeth are a little, they could use some work. There's some buildup there. And I said, yeah. I said, you know what? At 11 years old, I think, you know, they're okay. And she was floored. She was like, we thought he was four or five. Wow. No. So orthopedically, he was amazing. But that's just like Jeanette. Like, people always ask me. I say. Luck of the draw a little bit, too. It definitely is because they, like, my clients in particular are always like, if, if I get my dog fixed, will it, will his behavior get better? I'm like, that's a crapshoot. Yeah. I'm like, it could go against you or it could go with you, but. Yeah, I don't, I think if you have a behavioral problem, don't rely on spaying right. and neutering to fix it. It's. Right. Uh, it could make it worse too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, next question. Well, actually, this is just, yeah, this is a question. Bob, love your stuff. Would you ever come to Ontario, Canada? Yeah. 
There you go. Not that far. Favorite whistle? Favorite whistle. Um, right now, I use one from the Sport Dog Company. It's a P-less whistle. And so if you think about whistles, that you blow on one and there's that little ball in there, the P, and it'll trill like... Well, if you've got saliva or it's cold out, that saliva will freeze and the P won't trill. And so you'll get ones that'll go like... Mm. And now maybe at a distance with the dog running 100 miles an hour or splashing in running water, your your trill of the P whistle goes away. Um, so I use a P-less whistle made by Sport Dog. They're 12 bucks on Amazon. Get you one. There you go. I should sell them on my website, but... This is just a uh, <laughs> question I just had that you're talking about whistles. That kind of reminded me of like a turkey call there. Yeah. Has anybody ever done like dog stuff with turkeys? Yeah, dude. So, um, you know, a Boykin Spaniel? I've heard of them, yeah. All right, Never so worked with it's them. It's the South Carolina State Dog, um, and one of their attributes that they bred for was to flush turkeys and then come back to the owner and sit still, and the owner will call the turkeys back right. to them. So it'll be, you, you scare the turkeys away, dog comes back and hides, you're hidden, and now you're this imaginary turkey, like, hey, guys, where'd you go? Come back. Mm-hmm. You know, and the turkeys inevitably might come towards you and, and hunt them. Um, so that's how people would hunt, hunt a turkey so with a dog. I've been turkey hunting before, but not successfully. So mm-hmm. I know that that is a thing, right? Like you scare them off into the trees, and then for some reason they usually come back. Um, the goal would not be to scare them. The goal would be to hear them gobbling. Um, they, they roost. So at night they'll fly up into the tree. They're safe up there, and so they're in their roost. And you hopefully find them in their roost and go and set up strategically to when they land, you're making noise. And they're like, I should go check that out. Yeah. And if they come close enough, you get one. They're, uh, they're yeah. a really cool bird. They're very challenging. They're very smart. They've got amazing eyesight. And if you blink and they're close, they'll see you blink and they're gone. So your dog has to be. Yeah. I don't hunt them with dogs. Um, I don't even know if you can in New York, to be honest with you. But it's a, it's a tradition in other places. That's interesting. Yeah. Cool, Bob. It's been a pleasure to chat with you, man. Dude, this was a good show, man. I enjoyed it. It's nice to sit in, across from you and be in person and yeah, ramble and BS and yeah. I mean, I've been on yours. You've been on mine. And you know, like I was telling you when you came in, I, I want to learn more as much about dogs as I can, and I want my viewers and my listeners to learn too. So yeah. this was again like a, a, a more insightful thing for me than anything. And then the viewers and listeners can kind of yeah. go on this journey together. Uh, I'll leave. Uh, where can people find you? And you know, if they're if they're driving right now, I'll put all your links in the description. But where can people it. find what you're what you're doing and can get more about? this the game that you play yeah absolutely so um i highly encourage people whatever breed it is and they have a job learn how to fulfill the dog's purpose Mm. the dog will live a happier life so i'm fortunate enough that i get to do that Um, my company is called lone duck outfitters and kennels Um, you can find me on instagram lone duck i do most of my stuff there we've been building our youtube channel helping people um a lot more to come for that. We have an online force fetch course. Um, that's one of many that we're going to build out so that people can do it themselves and build that relationship with their dog. Um, so YouTube's Lone Duck Outfitters, Instagram. The podcast is called Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles. If you just type in Lone Duck, it'll pop up. Um, love helping people. Love watching dogs do what they were made to do. And 
I said it earlier, the unspoken bond, the relationship that people have with their dogs, working with them, building them, and then going out there and accomplishing what that goal was is an amazing thing. And I, I hope everybody, you know, mm. gives their dog a chance to, to feel that feeling and you feel that feeling of all the hard work you put in with the dog and the time. Love it. Yeah, man. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.